Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening to all of you out there listening to the show tonight. Uh, welcome to V Radio. If this is your first time listening to V Radio, uh, please consider checking out my website, v or v radioorg There you can find archives of other shows like this one. I've had Michael Shanklin on my show a few times now. Um, I've also had interviews with documentary filmmakers, scientists, politicians, a few good ones, roundtable discussions of uh, various uh, issues in this world. And while a lot of my content is, is revolves around the Zeitgeist Movement and things like that, that's not all I do on V-Radio. Um, if you check out my must-see TV list on the website, you will see a link of free documentaries that you can watch on the Internet that I think are kind of required watching for anybody who is socially conscious and an activist. So um, if you like what you hear, V-Radio is a listener-supported effort. I put time into this essentially uh, you know, in between my jobs. So um, if you'd be interested, uh, go to the Donate uh, button also there on the website. I also have a fundraiser open on um, Facebook if that's easier for you, but they take a pretty decent chunk out of your donation. So um, you know, do whatever's easier for you, but if you can, just go to the website and, and do it there. Um, uh, also, coming up tomorrow night, we have the return of Ben Stewart, the filmmaker from Chimatica, an esoteric agenda, uh, the lead singer of the band Herosonic. Um, Ben's a good friend of mine, and we will be talking about his upcoming TV show. Uh, all the details on that you can find um, in the description there. We will be talking about a lot of things with Ben. It's always great to have him on. And, um, if you missed it, you can go back to the archives and listen to my interview uh, with Danny Shine, an activist formerly of the Low Police with Charlie Beach. Uh, he still does a lot of great stuff in the United Kingdom as far as bringing awareness of kind of the, not just like the walls that are obvious, but the walls that people have, in, you know, in their minds that keep them from being free. So all of that said, I want to welcome you once again. Uh, thank you for coming on, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me on, Neil. I do appreciate it. Um, well, first of all, uh, you know, we started off this series kind of as a, you know, giving you an opportunity to ask some critical questions about the, uh, the Venus Project approach, um, and I think that those conversations went fairly well. Um, definitely better than exchanges that I've had with other people uh, as far as that, and it's one of the reasons why I brought you on and um, added you to my group and said, hey, you know, go ahead and post links and stuff, because I think that, you know, you do post a lot of things. Um, that are relevant to all activists, not just, you know, from an anarcho-capitalist perspective. So, um, you know, thanks again always for generally being a gentleman in debate, and, you know, we would definitely need more of that if mankind is ever going to move forward. Well, yeah, and, you know, some people some people inside the ANCAP movement told me I shouldn't, I shouldn't do it, uh, you know, go on the show because these arguments have been played out before and stuff like that, and to, to some extent they're, they're correct. But I think every time that we do interact... Uh, you know, first of all, I, we have no. It's not like I hate you and you hate me, right? We like each other. We enjoy uh, each other's. Uh, we I enjoy talking to you about other stuff too. You know, we've we've talked about our kids and stuff like that uh, on on uh, on the phone. And it's just you know we're, we're human beings, and what we're really trying to do is find the very best way for us. I, I what I believe is to interact and to live around one another. Uh, I happen to believe, uh, you know, that. A praxeological per- perspective, from an, uh, like an individual autonomy perspective, uh, is usually the healthiest. Um, and I and I think that the Zeitgeistians really do want that. They want everybody to <clears throat> agree 
to to what's you know going to happen with them. I just have issues with uh, you know my, how it might go down. Uh, but nonetheless, we can always come together, and I think every interaction we can take something away from it. We can learn, uh, and we, you and I can both learn and improve ourselves. And maybe other listeners will have that same blessing, if you want to call it that. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, well, it's, no, it's always good. To yeah, have, yeah, for sure. Even Stefan Molyneux and I agreed that the the various anti-statist movements um, should spend less energy fighting each other. That there's know a, a great deal of common enemies so to speak and that those people basically are all on the same page you know the top you know the elite types who run the the state apparatus that we have right now they don't spend anywhere near as much energy fighting each other as we do and that's essentially you know the reason why I think uh, it's hard for any either any of these groups to get as far as they could if we could work together on the things that we do agree about um, that's also kind of what Aaron Hawkins' you know, Storm Clouds Gatherings Natural Rights Foundation was supposed to be about, is to kind of, you know, to get these dialogues open, and I've had some great conversations, actually where I met you, so, um, you know, it definitely opened some doorways, if nothing else, but um, I think that, you know, you're definitely right in regards to the fact that these arguments are had frequently, and people have, um, on the same token, have said to me, you know, why do I spend so much time on it? Um, I recognize that uh, perhaps that, you know, I have played out these arguments quite a bit, but, you know, I wanted to have a conversation, you know, one more time with, you know, with somebody that I knew I could have a civilized talk with um, and kind of ask some of the questions that have come up. But um, you're not the only anarcho-capitalist I've ever met who conducts themselves well. It, it's just that what I tend to find is that um, frequently, and this is actually going to be kind of like my opening segue into one of the criticisms that I found because people are asking me why it took me so long to finally get you back on here. And it was like as I was researching it and also researching specifically how anarcho-capitalist debates go on is that you end up in a situation where uh, you guys are very diverse. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing, don't get me wrong. Um, but it's to say that, you know, if I, I've noticed when arguing with anarcho-capitalists, uh, it's like they, it reminds me of a wrestling match. Um, and I, that might be in my brain because my kids are wrestling in school right now. But, you know, like you, you say one thing and they go, well, that was Ayn Rand and, and I don't agree with Ayn Rand. And like, but these and other people said others, that they yeah. did, you know, right. But, yeah, well, yeah, but I don't, so therefore you're wrong about all of anarcho-capitalism because I specifically don't like Ayn Rand, or maybe I don't like Rothbard, or maybe, you know. That was the other thing that came up when I was reviewing the, the comments after Stefan Molyneux debated uh, Stormcloud's Gathering and Peter Joseph was that, you know, you, you'd watch the comments unfold, and there are all these people that say that they know absolutely what they're talking about in regards to anarcho-capitalism, and for some reason they're not consistent at all. Like, they all have very different answers. Um, and there's still a baseline, I would say, obviously. I mean, I, I spent time as a minarchist who was elbow to elbow with lots of anarcho-capitalists when I was in the Libertarian Party. Um, but it, it's basically, like, inevitably, like, over the course of this interview, I'm going to end up asking you questions, for example, from the perspective of anarcho-capitalist thinkers that you may not necessarily yourself agree with. And I understand that, I'm just going to kind of try to give you an opportunity, if possible, to field the arguments that are generally fielded in that area. Um, if you end up feeling not comfortable with doing that, then that's fine, but um, first of all, let me give you an opportunity to, to open up um, on specifically what you, Michael Shanklin, feel anarcho-capitalism is. All right, sweet. So, uh, you know, I, I think we should, first of all, 
realize that anarcho-capitalism is it really is a new term per se within the last hundred years. In fact, it was really coined in part by Murray Rothbard, who many say is the father of Austrian economics, if not one of the you know fathers. It, it, it's, it's not like it's a family or a government or anything like that, but you know, just one of the guys who really hammered away these thought processes a long time ago, and he happened to follow up in the footsteps of other individuals, such as Mises, who I feel didn't take the argument far enough. But anyway, enough of the history. Philosophically, anarcho-capitalism itself is really a, a political and an economical uh, a philosophy. The anarchy is, is the philosophical and the political, if there, if, or apolitical in this case. And then the capitalism would be the economic perspective. And basically what it says is it, it pushes for the elimination of the state, the abolishment of the state. And what it wants to do is to empower uh, the individuals at an individual level to the point where we respect each other and the, the justly acquired property of others. And this is usually where the Zeitgeist uh, movement has, you know, takes issue with the uh, anarcho-capitalists uh, because it, it does say that, well, we don't say you have to use money and nobody's going to be forced to. Like you could build a commune if you want. You can use money and nobody can stop you from doing so, or a medium of exchange, so I want to kind of define my terms as we go along here. When I say money, I'm not talking about FRNs for your, for your obviously you know this, but for sure. others who might not understand, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, government federal reserve notes or federal, you know, like like FRN fiat. I'm, 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 I'm talking about medium of exchange, just uh, uh, something that's used to uh, basically make barter more efficient, so I don't have to have, you know, cut my cow up to trade for six eggs, right? So, uh, in essence, because we have this what's called praxeological root where individuals are autonomous we're not all plugged in to a machine like the matrix we're not all part of the borg like from star trek right we're, we're all individuals uh, like i've said before if, if i touch a stove uh, somebody in china doesn't feel it doesn't it's not like if they touch a stove i get burned right over here so we have we have individual bodies we are individuals and, we, and since we are individuals we're going to have disagreements with how resources are going to be utilized. And because of these disagreements in how the resources should be utilized, uh, we, we should allow people to acquire and control them because this you know, limits the, the uncertainty of uh, them and their property. So in other words, this is really uh, well known for some regions that this, the reason libertarians even come up, came up or popped up or any of this stuff is even why I'm, I'm here talking about it is because there have been infringements of this, these principles, and they've led to some serious and drastic uh, side effects and consequences, such as millions of people dying. You know, we could get into that thing, and I'm not saying that guy's leading us there or anything. You know, I'm just saying there are historical examples of some really bad things happening. And so, because of this, we we when we look back at what it was because of is because uh, individuals, especially the starvation and the economic sanctions and stuff like that, that's done because of this violent monopoly, because of government stopping other peaceful people from basically doing as they wish with their property, controlling it through regulation, taxation, things like this. So we see, we see uh, an attack on property just like an attack on, on the individual himself. And so uh, we're not saying that there's a perfect world out there or a utopia, nirvana, or anything like that. What we are saying is we do think, even if this is like more of a subjectivist argument, we do make the argument that we do think that respecting individual property, although it's not a perfect scenario it, by any measure, you're going to have problems inside of this world, we do think it'll lead to one of the better outcomes that is possible for humanity. And I think the Industrial Revolution has proven this pretty well. 
so this, I think this is what has really given anarcho-capitalism some kind of a benchmark to, to go off of this because we were stuck. Well, we, I wasn't around for this, but humanity, you know, trillions of, at least hundreds of billions of souls before the year 1716 or 1800, they were stuck in what's called the Malthusian trap where it was very political, serfdom, kingdom, stuff like this, which is all obviously an infringement on property. Individuals couldn't really even control property even as much as today. And because of this, what we saw was uh, you know, lots of poverty. They could never, the, the worker, the average worker, would have to work days and days just to, to buy a candle. So, you know, candles were a luxury back then, whereas today they're, they're like, what's a candle? Oh, those are the things we used to use before we had electricity, which is supposedly more efficient, right? And so, we, we see that people were stuck in this Malthusian trap, and because of that, the anarcho-capitalist uh, sees right after property rights were starting, to, you know, after we, the people kind of broke away from King George, and then other regions started to want to break away, and they had more economic freedom at the time, they, they saw a, a boom, 12, 12-fold increase in the workers' standard of living, something that governments and, and kings and, and fiefs and presidents had, even so-called democracies like in Rome, which I don't think it was really a democracy per se. You know, I, don't, I also wonder if there is ever a thing as such as true democracy, but I don't want to get off topic here. But we see these infringements, you know, and we realize that you know, the violent monopoly, this, the state hasn't... They're not the ones who actually brought about this prosperity. It was individuals seeking their own you know, rational self-interest. And when I say rational self-interest, I really do mean it in the way of... When I say rational, as in not infringing on others... Uh, and I think that when we when we do look at the state as we do a private criminal, uh, it goes hand in hand. Unfortunately, the the state can do more damage. And this is why we focus on the state as being the enemy so much. Uh, Rothbard, once again, one of the leading proponents of Austrian economics and anarcho-capitalism, and he he basically uh, has indicated numerous times that the state's the enemy, right? And so what we do here is we we do look at not only the state, but also private crime is bad, so I don't want to make it look like we're just against the state. But really, in essence, the anarcho-capitalist just rejects the state because we're pro-free will. It's only because we're pro-free will that we even reject the state, because the state aggresses on our free will. That's what it does. Without this aggression on free will, the state wouldn't exist. You could not have a state without the threats of stealing property which we see as an infringement, once again, on the individual. It's just an extension of the individual. Now, uh, obviously, the, like I've said before, there's no utopian society, but we do understand that the anarcho-capitalist perspective uh, tries to empower the individual. This is why people call us individualists. It doesn't mean we're anti-collectivists, per se. I want to work with my neighbor and friends and coworkers and, and Neil, right? I want to work with you. <laughs> I, want to work with, I want to work with people. I, that, so I, I, I call it voluntary collectivism, whereas the state is forced collectivism, and it forces us into its, its literally violent hierarchy, whereas any other form of hierarchy in the market, all, although, like, obviously, uh, somebody who has less skills than somebody else, they're going to have to go to, to school. Usually they're younger, right, or they'd have experience in the industry, or maybe they're just new to the industry. Uh, you know, obviously there, there is uh, differences in everybody. We're all unique. We're all individuals in our own way. Uh, and, and obviously there's some downsides to this, right? But we think there's also a lot of goods that can come from that, and that uh, if, if humanity can look at it from the perspective of non-aggression, that's really, I think, the, the anarcho-capitalist backbone 
is, is not aggressing on individual and justly acquired or homesteaded or voluntarily traded property. Uh, now, there's obviously people who have, even inside of the libertarian camp, there's issues on how to homestead. Right? Right. But I, th- I think in general, though, the concept is the individual is real, whereas the collective is nothing but a mental construct of the individuals. So it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's intangible, whereas the human being is tangible and real. So we, we, we give credence to the individual. We don't want to infringe on them, and we also see uh, not only infringing on their body is wrong, but we even take it to the next step in saying infringing on what they've uh, homesteaded or justly acquired to voluntary trade as wrong as well. I hope that summarizes it. We can go from there. <laughs> that was quite verbose. Um, all right. Well, let me see if I can I can break it down a little bit, and, and you tell me if I'm in any way wrong. Um, yes, sir. Okay. So anarcho portion of this meaning that you no, know, obviously without state, um, without rulers. Um, would you Would you agree with that analysis of that part of the word? Without state, without rulers. Yeah, an- anarchy would be uh, the anarcho. Some people don't even know this, so I think we should explain it to them. Anar- anarchy really means, uh, it's, if you break it up, it's an and then arch-e, which is rulers. So an an is without. It's a Greek prefix and, and suffix. So it really means without rulers. So that's all anarchy really means. So this is why I say nobody wants to be a slave, right? If you, say, if you walk up to somebody and say, hey, do you want to be a slave? Like, no. <laughs> oh, so you're an anarchist. No, no, no. Well, they, they really, in their heart, they want, they want free will. Everybody wants free will. They just sure. might not understand it, right? So, yeah, uh, the anarchy perspective would be, would, would be without rulers, yes. And then when we say capitalism, uh, we're, we're very clearly making sure that people understand we're talking only about absolutely free market capitalism because there is no state to intervene in any fashion. Is that correct? Right. And I want to I want to really extend the uh the fact that uh, capitalism just means that that you can use money, not that you have to use money. For instance, I I don't have to uh, use FRN notes if I want to live out in the woods right now, right? I'm not. I'm not trying to say that's an anarcho-capitalist society. I'm just giving a, a little analogy right here, you know, a hypothetical scenario. So you don't have to use money. I, I think it would make your life more efficient. It would increase trade and barter and all that other stuff and specialization and, and division of labor, which I, I do see as favorable. And uh, um, so yeah, so I, I do. I do think that that's correct. Okay. Now it's interesting. Okay, so you said that you feel that. At least in your assessment, because once again, this is very controversial among anarchists that I talked to. Uh, uh, Murray Rothbard, you would say, was very important, um, like as far as anarcho-capitalist theory, people like you know being familiar with his work. Well, whether you like him or not, he was he, yeah, he was very influential, right? I mean, technically, I don't like uh, George Bush, but he was influential in American politics, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> But I do like sure. Rothbard more than Bush. <laughs> no, I don't want to get down that way. But you know what I'm getting. I'm trying to just make sure we don't we we, we stay in that silver lining so I can stay safe. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. And once again, I, that's why I keep making the disclaimer, Mike, is that inevitably we're going to be talking about aspects of anarcho-capitalism that you personally may not agree with. But that you know, since the show is basically about you answering questions about anarcho-capitalism, I don't want you to think that you know if I put something down that's very important to some end caps that you need to be held accountable to that on, you know, on your own. So that being said, um, the reason that I, I, um, I, it's interesting about Murray Rothbard because he was brought to my attention by people who said, well, you know, uh, Ayn Rand is not important. You know, you need to familiarize yourself with Rothbard. Um, 
I, it's interesting actually that this came up because I, I kind of made some notes about that specifically. Um, and I, I provided the link from the, to the Mises Institute article by Murray Rothbard on the ethics of liberty. Are you familiar with that? Yes, his book, The Ethics of Liberty. Right. Right. So, um, chapter 14, Children and Rights. Um, this oh, yeah. Actually, I even made a video about this. No, we need to talk about this. Go ahead. Yeah, because it ends up, um, it's, some of the stuff in here is pretty disturbing. And But I, I understand why, and I think that it's largely because of the fact that you guys have a very difficult task ahead of you, which is to kind of determine, uh, you know, how, you know, like, you know, do you own yourself or are you yourself? Okay, well, if I own myself, then I have property rights with myself. You know, um, so uh, I guess uh, the, the first let me ask you, you know, as far as, you know, your understanding, um, do parents own their children? No, no, I don't think they own them. I think that they have quasi-homesteaded the right to raise them. But that that comes with lots of silver lining in there as well. So no, I don't I don't think that they own them personally. The, the ownership question, like, do we even own ourselves? I can understand the people who say we do not own ourselves because we are ourselves. But to me, you know, that still is a form of ownership, except it, minus the fact that you can't trade it, right? <laughs> you can't you, you can't be like, well, I'm going to put my brain inside of Sally's head. Well, you can't do that. So technically, you do own yourself, except for one of the tenants, which is there's four tenants of ownership, and one of them is uh, bequeath, so you can get rid or sell off or trade for what you own, you know, from a property perspective. I guess you can sell your kidney, right, uh, you know, in a free society. Some people do that right now or donate them. So, you know, that, I guess you, you know, this goes into the whole argument of, of is the body self, is the mind where the consciousness is, where's the photons that actually make up the, the, the life, you know. It really goes in deep on this part of it. But, yeah, I can, see, I can understand where people would get the idea uh, I, I don't really have a problem with people saying they own themselves. I can see I can see both sides of the argument. I think once you understand that deep of it, I think we're we're pretty good to a point of self ownership anyway. If you want to look at it, you know, to where you're seeing the bigger picture. But I do not think you technically own your kids because you uh, it's, 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 you can't like some some libertarians take it a little too far for me. Uh, I, I think it's not free enough to where you know I, I see every kid as just another human being they just happen to be three months old instead of 18 yes their judgment is impaired yes uh, th there is a lack of capacity I am not doubting that right if I was writing a contract with a child I wouldn't sign off on a contract and just let a, 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 a like if I was working back for Ford I wouldn't just let a six-year-old write off the lot with a brand new truck right I mean that would just be ridiculous that there's no capacity I understand that no 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 system around me not even in a free society or in a non-free society would enforce a contract with a six-year-old everybody knows there's no capacity what we do say at least I what I say I don't want to put words in, in the movement's mouth but what I say is that every human being has the right to own themselves and that parents are supposed to be there to fulfill that, to help them understand that, to raise them into that capacity. And this is why we talk about nonviolent parenting. This is why I focus on non-spanking or what I call pitting in essence. So I, I'm against all of the, you know, this, this type of a, a mentality where you have this authoritarian structure per se. I do think that parents do have a quasi-homesteaded right. It's not that they own the child, but they do have a, a, a right to make the 
decisions as far as how they're raised. So, you know, I don't, I don't think that just because some guy is feeding his kids white bread instead of wheat bread, and I really want him to feed his kids wheat bread, that I'm going to go over there and be able to take his kids from him, right? So they have a right to raise them and to, uh, in effect, also, there, there, there are some gray areas here as, as far as, you know, especially with troubled children. Uh, some, some kids do get in trouble. Some kids are just put into a place. They don't even cause that much trouble, and their, their, kids, their parents just want to get rid of them and send them off to camp. There's a variety of different scenarios out there, but in essence, uh, it, it really comes down to, I, I think, once we have a freer society or people like us who come from this nonviolent parenting, not that my child's raised and I have empirical evidence right here, but I have seen it work for others, and I think it'll work for me, and it's working so far. My child loves me to death, and we're, I, I could just tell we have a strong bond. Uh, but anyway, and I, and I know I'm not going to hit him or anything like that down the road, right? Uh, and because of that, I think uh, he's going to have a much better, healthier Life, there's, it's kind of like the old argument when he goes back to economics. Like, well, do you have when when you have economic devastation or poverty, uh, crime increases. Uh, you know, it goes back to this whole thing. Well, when you, when you have less violence in your interpersonal relationships with your child, co- consequently, you would think it would have some type of uh, the, the, a similar effect, right? So, um, it's not just a placebo. You're actually changing the environmental structure that the child is raised into. Well, no, and, and I um I don't I don't want to interrupt only because it's just it's. It, um, I totally agree with you about the parenting yeah, thing. Yeah. I, I think my audience does too. Um, okay, good, good. Although Rothbard like kind of goes back and forth about that with different people that he's debated about it, and that's um, because it you know it kind of comes back to the the issue of you know okay so uh, so the parent doesn't own the child, um, but uh, therefore um, they, the, and this is the the very controversial issue that I would like your viewpoint on, but. Uh, Rothbard goes on to say that, however, um, while the parent cannot aggress upon the child because uh, the child, you know, in theory is now its own person, um, there is nothing that anyone can do to compel the parent to feed that child or to otherwise take care of that child. And if the parent wants to, they can just let that parent, that child starve. Okay, yeah, here's in essence what he's saying. Uh, basically, let's say you have, you know, so here, I have my son here. He's one year old. We'll, we'll use him as an example. I think it's a perfect example. And so uh, me and my wife, we just decide to be the most delinquent parents in the whole world, the most uh, emotionally abusive, and not that we're hitting him per se, but we take it to, to the point where we're, we're basically we're starving him, right? Well, the question then becomes, first of all, uh, are other people allowed to feed the child. So can somebody else feed the child or even take the child and homestead it themselves if the, if the child's not being fed? And I, I do understand that even with Walter Block and him and I have disagreements on child, and I think he's more of the Rothbardian blend, even he realizes that uh, parents can, can homestead other child's parents if they're not feeding them. The, the point, though, is, is it a criminal act to not give food to my one-year-old right now, right? And, and really, in essence, even in a free society. So right now in a state, I think most libertarians would say, well, the state shouldn't tackle and cage you over it. But, and then they'd add in their own little flavor, right? Well, what I, what I think in a free society would happen is that uh, the, the child would, would if, if somebody else is going to feed the child, then there's nothing that they can do from, from stopping the people from taking the child. It, it, this is the, re- the reality of the world. If, if you don't take care of what you've homesteaded, it's kind of like if you don't take care of... of uh, if, if this is something you've homesteaded, and if you can't take care of it, then it's going to 
not so it's a living being it's not like it's it's just like a chair or a car right it's another living being if you're not going to give it the sustenance then somebody else can give it the sustenance then sorry but they, they have the right to homestead it and uh this happens under the state too and nobody really has too many qualms about it because there are serious situations where people have like eight kids and the kids get taken away because they're starving because the you know the parent can't feed them or something like that but in essence under libertarian law is it a criminal act not to feed a kid obviously i have an ethical problem with it i think every libertarian does but am i willing to make it you know go and tackle them and cage them over it no what i can do is is homestead the kids away from the people who aren't taking care of that that living being who aren't giving that living being sustenance and uh, as long as they do not stop these parents who are being bad and me and cheryl are being horrible as long as we don't stop others from taking care of the child uh, then we've created no criminal act so I guess um, you know this is going to inevitably, eventually, anyway, segue into my conversation about DROs and such, so that people right. understand like what anarcho-capitalist theory does to re- you know basically replace uh, agencies like Child Protective Services. Which don't get me wrong, um, I'm not a pro-state individual, and I think that Child Protective Services does a lot of terrible um, in their job. Um, and I don't think that you know, state advocacy is the issue, is the suggestion. I think, um, I, but what I do see because of the fact that the the industry revolving around that is chock full of corruption, um, and I, I've also seen things get really, really out of hand. Particularly, say, uh, you and I are, um, you know, or let me just say, you know, let's say by some stretch of the imagination, you and your wife get divorced, and now the two of you are arguing over how the child should be raised, and you know, there, there's no third party to come in and intervene. Um, yeah, it, it, it basically puts you in a pretty tough spot. Um, and I'd also say, like, when it comes to the homesteading, you know, maybe the parent is not feeding the child to the expectations of their neighborhood. Um, and now they've decided to come in and homestead. Well, now the parent feels compelled to defend their property and shootouts erupt and... All right. Well, hey, let, let me touch on this. this I, we got to talk about this. This is a great subject. I'm glad you brought this up. So let's say we are in a free society, and two uh, parents get into it over a child, right? Well, do you think the other family members and, and society and their friends in general are just going to allow like one of them to say, well, I'm willing to go and talk to you about how we can come to a compromise, and we can do it through tiered arbitration, so I can have an outside third-party agency come in and hear the facts, and you can have one come in and hear the facts, and then we can both agree to a, a, a second tier who will come in here and listen to both the arbitrators talk about it, and we can work out a deal. If one side says, yeah, you know, I'll do that, and the other side doesn't do that in any capacity whatsoever, who, who do you think the rest of society and, and your neighbors and family members are going to really side with? They're going to they're urge everybody to go. They want everybody to be peaceful. That's why they are so frightened into a state in the first place is because they think peace comes from the state. They, you know, they, they don't realize the millions of deaths and the wars and all this stuff, and let alone the war on drugs, the millions of people in cages for victimless crimes. It's, it's because they're fear-mongered against that, right? So in essence, they, people are going to have an incentive to go into uh, arbitration and mediation, what, what we call you know, coming to a compromise in the real world, right? Pragmatic solution. Yeah. So they're, they're going to be incentivized to do this just from social pressures around them. And, and then, unlike the state where they, can, they don't really have too much choice on who the judge is, right? You just get stuck in this room and you hear a lot of parents that are fathers especially getting 
suppose you know I don't I don't I haven't been in the situation. I have seen a lot of statistics that do side with the women. Uh, I don't want to get feminist on me right here, but yeah, you know, th- th- there's there's no choice in your arbiter with the judge. He, he might not even be specialized. Some of them might be just for CPS, but some of them like do child custody and they also do criminal law and they do all kind you know like uh, uh, tort reform uh, law and all this uh, kind sure. of stuff, right? So with a, a free society. You're going to be able to actually pick out your arbiter. There's not going to be no excuse afterwards. After you've come to the agreement, whoever just agreed to go into one of these things and then backs out is going to be the one – the rest of society is going to say, come on, you just want an agreement. This is the very backbone of why we have a peaceful society in the first place is because people keep their agreements, right? So let's, let's have people keep their agreements. Uh, you know, Obviously, you can't get a politician to do that, but – Social pressure usually has done – this is why peer pressure is so dangerous, essence. But it can be turned into a good form of ostracism if society understands, you know, nap and non-aggression and, and stuff like that, which I do believe Zeitgeist really wants. So um, this is why, you know, in a free society, you're going to have much more incentive structure for coming to a peaceful resolution than you do under any kind of a state where the actual arbitration services are monopolized, where you can be threatened into this third-party agency against your will, and arbitration services – uh, even if you are ostracized from community, it all turns political. You wouldn't have all these political, you know, mind-numbing Republicans versus Democrats, and that's why that's that's what really happened with Trayvon. Well, that's what really happened with Zimmerman and people just taking sides without looking at facts. Even, you know, in this scenario, you wouldn't have all this political pandering and pulling, and people would actually have to come. They'd be raided on. It's not like this arbitration agency is just going to do this one scenario, and then for the next ten years, they're in Hawaii making, you know. Uh, uh, Mahiwahi, uh, what do they call those things? So they, they, they're going to have lots of, of the very second they're done with your court case or arbitration service, they're going to turn around and go to the next person an hour later and try and solve their case. And they want to get as much good feedback as possible. So they're going to try and come to the best compromise as possible. The state has no incentive to do this whatsoever. If anything, it actually pits two people against each other, families against each other. But this is what the state is. It's division. Where I, What I think with the market, although we do have property and we do have individual autonomy, it brings us together and makes us want to interact in a more peaceful scenario, which incentivizes us to get things done just like this, that unfortunately in a state are so biased and political that we don't know what the end game of this, you know. <laughs> we, we never know how it's going to turn out, and there's so much, so many special interests pulling on, on the... It's like people think that the state isn't economically incentivized whatsoever, right? And then the confusion comes in that any economic system equals capitalism. I think that's one of the, the fallacies uh, that I, f- I found the most. Right. Really, this, um, this, I, I, I do want to get into DROs, but I, I kind of want to get back to the kids. All right, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Um, I guess I, I wanted to read a little bit here from Murray Rothbard. Applying her theory to parents and children, this means that a parent does not have a right to aggress against his children, but also that a parent should not have the legal obligation to feed, clothe, or educate his children. Such, such obligations would entail positive acts coerced upon the parent and by depriving the parent of his rights. The parent, therefore, may not murder or mutilate his child, and the law properly outlaws a parent from do, doing so, but the parent should have the legal right not to feed the child, i.e., allow it to die. The law, therefore, may not properly compel a parent to feed a child or to keep it alive. Uh, again, whether or not the parent has a moral rather than a legally enforceable obligation to keep his child is completely a separate question. Right. Um, so, that, I mean... That, what, what, let me summarize it real quick. If other people can come in there and, and homestead the child and raise the child, then there is no issue. Uh, you know, like, the question comes down to, anytime there's any kind of a justice question is, would I personally... Not just vote on that law, but would I enforce it? Would I run over there, tackle that father, throw him in a, a cage, and, 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 and do this to him? Basically, in, in, what I can see as an infringement on him, 
would I be willing to go and, and tackle and cage him over this? That's really the justice argument, whereas the ethical argument, everybody, every libertarian would be like, of course you have an ethical uh, you know, obligation to feed your child. We're going to look bad on you. We will ostracize you if you don't do it. But I, I, can't, I can't take it to the next point where it's a justice issue where I would actually physically do it myself, tackle and cage you over it. If I can feed the child myself, you know what? Be gone and let me raise the child. I don't want you to raise the child anyway. And if they don't agree to that? Well, then that's then they're infringing. Then then it becomes a crime. Okay. Then it, be, then it becomes a crime. Then that's so a private if you, crime. So if they don't like let you homestead, then it's a crime. Well, yeah. If you are not giving sustenance to that child, if you're if you're basically holding back the stuff that keeps it alive, yes, yes, that that that's really under libertarian law. What all my research I've done under it, and it even comes into the evictionist argument somewhat. Yeah, it, it, as long as somebody else is allowed to take uh, raise the child. Uh, then you cannot, you cannot just because these other people gave up that 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 what I call ethical imperative. I, I can't turn that into a, a, a truly political justice. Go and tackle that person, throw them in a cage scenario. You see what I'm getting at? Uh, well, okay, I, I understand. I um, I would say I don't personally have a lot of faith that that would really work out. But I uh, part of the problem I think is that you know I've lived in cities where you know there are children that basically didn't have any state intervention and certainly didn't get any from the environment I get or from the people in the neighborhood especially if they're hurting themselves you know I, but, and I do think that it'll happen moral hazard. Sometimes, but I, I don't think it's hazard. A if you have a government there you know why people so, so many people around me I've asked them like would you donate to charity and they're like well uh, the, the state already takes a lot of my money and gives it to the poor I'm like no you don't understand it's not going they like really think this is the moral hazard of government these people really think government like takes care of the poor and stuff like that man it's, it's screwing us you know it's like screwing us with, it, with its uh, special advantages for corporatists left and right while these guys sell the lie that the, 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 you know, the state is there to actually benefit the poor and that's what keeps them alive and I have to keep telling people so I think there's a huge moral hazard that changes the way that people think right now inside of a state structure to the point where you can't even see the fact that charity's not going to the poor or it's, it's less of it. So they think, like, some people think they can just, like, vote for the right guy, and then all of a sudden the system will start taking care of the poor. Well, that's bullshit, right? Well, you and I both know that. No, no, and I'm not saying the state. I know you I'm, know that. I'm saying in places where I, I don't, the state really doesn't have a lot of influence. I don't, I basically just don't feel that, um, that that is going to be a, a sufficient replacement for the way that things are currently happening. And I don't think that the way that things are currently happening is good. I think we could do better, but I, I don't think that uh, basically hoping that other people decide to take it upon themselves to homestead um, you know, for a neglected child. Well, is, I never said they, they would just go do it on their own. They'd have to have society's backing in some way or another, right? Just like they do in the state. So in essence, that's where your one thing is, is there any safeguards to people just stealing other people's kids? Yes, there would be. And I think you see a lot less infringements of this, whereas today the state has an incentive to go out there and get parents. Uh, they actually make a lot more money than I can even imagine a private sector would actually make if they were like in a freely competitive market where they actually had to like fight for customers. It, with the state, they make a crap load of money. If you go to a courtroom, man, that, that thing is more profit incentivized than I've ever seen. So that, are they, you suggesting a profit-motivated group of child advocacy groups that are competing against each other? Well, that could be one of them. That could be one of the ways that does it. I, I think that what we're going to see – here's the reason – why anarcho-capitalists aren't really afraid of money is, and, and actually why we somewhat uh, welcome it in our lives is because we realize that we cannot get any kind of uh, trustable feedback system 
without we can have feedback I guess you can say like I can go to Amazon and see a rating for a cup that somebody else bought and they could tell me it was a really good cup and the steel's strong and it has keeps my coffee warm and all the rest of the stuff but the the, 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 the dollars and cents behind it show us where efficiency is happening and not only where efficiency is happening but where people are usually getting the best results right so in essence uh, the question comes down here is to like what is an anarcho-capitalist perspective anarcho-capitalist wants to see the kids who are not being uh, fed, fed. And, and what they're going to do is only rule in cases where they do, because if they don't, then they're going to have all these other people hating on this one company that just had a horrible ruling, whereas with the state, you have to bring down the whole society around you. At least in a free society, you can knock off that one company, and it's not so violently monopolized. All we are is decentralizers, really, down to the individual level. Right. Um, I guess uh, I don't see, I mean, as I think about it, I don't see where such a company would exist, because obviously young children don't have the money to pay for an advocacy. No, it'd be, it'd be the other, it'd, it'd most likely be the, uh, uh, not only charity, but also the other parents or the other family, people who want to, they see the child being neglected and they want to take care of it, so they would ask for donations. I mean, there's numerous ways to raise money, especially with the internet today where you show a starving child and you say, hey, you, you give me $20,000, we can raise $20,000 in the next week, I can get this child, we can get the, the DRO XYZ to sign off on it, and of course, They'll talk to the other DROs, check out with them, make sure the arbitration is good, show them the proof, the evidence that the child's being starved. Then they'll go in, unlike the state who just like today could just, oh, the we'll no-knock rate almost any house, right? So the, the, the thing is, you're being more aggressive on today than you would in that society. And not only that, they wouldn't have to specialize in only, uh, like, recovering children from starving families, they, they could specialize in a variety of things. It's not like Walmart sells just shoes, right? They sell a, a bunch of different things. So the, the specialization does have its effect, but even, even within division of labor, there is still uh, niches where you could have a variety of different things that could keep a, a business up like that. And such, like, if people really want a state that bad, look at the billions, hell, trillions, if you look at the last hundred years, trillions of dollars spent on governments. That, that, that money would be right back in the, in the, in, in the free market. I mean, th those people would have the money to go spend it on what they want, especially charities that they support. Uh, and any company that really has, it's going to be very, like right now we don't have a rating agency. Whoever gets done, the, the state's not going to serve you a, a survey after the police give you a ticket and say, how was your ticket experience, right? I can actually see that happening under a free society. They're going to have to answer their consumers or they're going to go out of business. They're going to have the best system. Or th That's the thing. It's always a threat that they're going to lose uh, everything that they have. The millions of dollars that they could actually make off of doing a very good, successful business, they could lose all of that overnight, whereas the state has no incentive to improve whatsoever. Uh, and, and the people are stuck paying into this system. We don't have a choice where overnight we could just put this company out of business by posting right, a Facebook. Right, right, right. I mean, you, you don't, don't have to sell me on, on, no, on no state theory. <laughs> You know, it's fine. I gotcha. I'm just trying, I, I, and I hate to interrupt. I just, it, um, you're very passionate, and it shows. And <laughs> I, I'm trying to be very polite, and it'll go on for paragraphs. And I get it. You're, you very much care about this. Um, so uh, now we, we've established that, at least in your view, uh, parents do not own their children, um, and that essentially they're, um, I guess. One alternative theory would be that they're they're legally caretakers of them. Um, now, uh, when does the child no longer have to be subject to the uh, to the parents' uh, homestead over them? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and, and there's still 
it's kind of like saying, well, what's the speed limit going to be in a free society? Well, I don't even know if there's going to be a one set speed limit, right? Maybe some guy who's a good driver, uh, they'll, they'll let him drive 80 miles an hour because he's been driving for 30 years. And maybe the new teenager who just got on the road last week can only go 50. I don't know. You know, I don't think they'd have that. I don't know what would happen. I don't know what the best and most efficient way to do that is. But I can tell you right now, um, the, just because we don't know doesn't mean that three people are going to want to go to what the best option is. What was that scenario again? Oh, yeah, with the, the age limit. So let's talk right. about capacity. So with capacity, uh, some some people I know that are 14, maybe maybe not 14, but like 16, they, they really do have their, their stuff together. I've talked to some 16-year-olds uh, that are just absolutely uh, amazing, mature, <laughs> respectful, yeah. and, and so they do have... Uh, the capacity to go live life. They could probably move out on their own. Then I've also met 25-year-olds. Uh, I'm like, man, something happened to you, you know. <laughs> poor poor thing. You just can't take care of yourself either. I, I, it's, just, it's really sad. But I, I, I don't think there's going to be one age limit out there where, like, you're going to be like, well, like I, don't, I can't see any DRO saying, well, we're going to go and, and uh, get your kid who's 17 and a half years old and bring him back uh, here. There's going to be numerous incentives for people not to get 17 and a half year olds back to their parents in my opinion because I think that in a freer society where we see more people as individuals and we respect individuals we're going to also see like you know what I'm trying to bring about what my vision is is where people value all human life including the child you know I, I think we've heard people say that we're kind of coming on like we've had the women's movement and the minority movement and you know we, we see more equality uh, throughout the world, well, it's time for children next, right? We're still on the cause for all these different things of, of, of trying to bring, in my opinion, equality under non-aggression. That's what I'm aiming for. But under the capacity thing, I mean, I, I don't I don't have uh, one age limit that's going to be set. I just can't see somebody who's like 17 and a half years old who says, I don't want to live with my parents anymore, and uh, like they do in the state most of the time where they actually force them to stay with their parents or try to trick them into it, whichever one can pay the most money. In this case, I, I, I can't see it, it being worth the rating agency that they're going to have that's going to rule against them and, and all the, the public ostracism that could come out of it. But once again, the capacity age uh, and, and the efficiency of the enforcement of the capacity age are two different things. As far as just the capacity age itself, I, I, I see 18 being the standard going into the future for quite a while, although I do actually over time think it will, it will lower, uh, even inside of a state structure. But in a free society, I think that m most people, like once they hit 16, 17, 18, uh, they'll try and ask. It, it might even become some new fad, like when you're like really proud to become an individual or something like that inside of a free society where you can be like, I, I want to you know, uh, come into a contract with my parents at this time where we agree to let me be an adult at 16 and a half or this age or something like that. You know, maybe you guys could come to an agreement with your parents. And if the parents don't want you to do it, then you could try and find, uh, seek help from outside agencies. Uh, once again, the arbitration agencies, there's going to be multiple agencies out here. No, no company would ever just take over the whole market. Somebody's always going to want some other competitor, at least in a free society. And so because of that, they're going to have in the, to work together. Uh, so even if, even if, one of the things doesn't play out in the end. So let's say they, they don't get the kid, right? Well, if, if most of the people in society say, you know, that 17-year-old has autonomy over himself, if you go and do that, I'm probably going to drop your services. I'm just going to – I'm not going to be servicing. I don't want your services anymore. See you guys later. That's just wrong. Um, Maybe some – you know, there's no perfect world once again. But I, I would see it going something like that, and most people just wouldn't want their money wasted 
on trying to track down a 17-year-old and, and, and force him to go live with his parents who he doesn't want to go live with anymore, especially, especially when he can already prove that he's moved out and lived a life outside of that. Uh, I, just, I just can't see agencies wasting their money and, and pissing off their, their consumers who already have this individualistic mentality. Right, if we even get to a free society, we're going to, I believe, have, have a society where people see children and value them a little bit more than they do today as just some idiots or some overactive brats. Right, yeah, we would certainly hope so. Right, um, right. Now, uh, child pornography, is it legal? Okay, here's the thing. Child pornography itself, there's a, there's, let's go into this a little bit more detail. The act of having sex, like if you have sex with a six-year-old, right? Let's, let's make it a pretty easy case here. If you have sex with a six-year-old, most, most people would view that six-year-old as not having capacity, right? A six-year-old uh, most likely doesn't have capacity. So most people, I think in a free society, and I think today they do, and I, I would feel this way, they, they would take issue with that, and they would say that that's an infringement on the non-aggression principle, right? Because you're you are basically uh, that's a sexual act with somebody who who's pretty young for a sexual act. Uh, I, now these come to some subjectivist moral and ethical norms, but I, I do think that even inside of a free society, you're going to have some kind of a benchmark or a backbone. And I, I think when people see that, they're going to they're going they're going to consider that a crime. Now, is the reproduction of the video itself? and somebody else watching the video, is that the crime? And I would say no. Not that I'm encouraging it, not that I'm endorsing it, but it kind of comes back to the argument of, well, you know, uh, am I allowed to starve my kids? Well, I'm not going to throw you in a cage over it, but you can't stop me from beating them. Okay. In this case, it's a no victim and no crime scenario. Uh, in essence, they are not hitting the, the little girl. Uh, they're, they're not, you know, they're not infringing technically on the little girl, although her privacy obviously has been infringed upon. Uh, there, there's, there's really no way to stop it anyway. I mean, this stuff's going to be on the internet and torrented everywhere. You might be able to catch a fly uh, out of a, you know, like maybe one bee out of this wasp nest or out of this bee's nest. But it, that's just kind of like the, the war on drugs. That's what I think of any type of a movement that's going to go and stamp out something, right? So in essence, uh, I, although it's disgusting, deplorable to me, I, I can't understand it personally. I, I, I just don't want I'd rather I get off on something else, you know. I'm, I don't know. It's just not my thing. Well, no, no. And I'm, by no means would I ever think, Michael, that you were into it. But it, this is actually a question that um, totally changed the shape of the 2008 Libertarian uh, nomination because anarcho-capitalist Mary Ruart, very popular with the yep. uh, uh, radical wing, got kind of sidewalled by, uh, oh, God, I'm going to forget his name. I hate that guy. Um, basically... Uh, Republican light. That's what oh Wayne Allen Root. Yeah, he needed to bring this up because Mary was by all by all stretches of the imagination more popular than him. But um, Mary's answer to it um, was still enough to really knock her down the, yeah. the row. So um, Mary's a great person. You know, I had pictures with her. We we actually uh, we we sat and talked for a while when we were at the, I was at a convention. You know, I used to be huge in the LP2 a while back, you know, and uh, like really big, like I was the political director for North Carolina, and then I was on the executive committee, and I went to the conference in St. Louis, and I voted on all these things, and you know, I went through all that, and Mary Ruwer is a great human being. She really has a wonderful heart, doesn't she? Yeah, I think, well, what I told her was that I believed that if, you know, the world was full of Mary Ruarts, that her theories would work. I just, unfortunately, don't feel that it is. Um, which brings me to my next question. Um, child prostitution legal? 
Is child prostitution legal? No, because it just goes back to the capacity question. I mean, no, no. That you, 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 well, the, the question is like, what age? You know, there's there's so much subjectivity in here. Like a six-year-old, no way in hell. No, I can't see any human uh, or any DRO just standing by and letting you know some company just get away with essentially not raping in the physical like uh, harmful sense, like 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 physical pain. I don't know. Maybe they have pain just for having sex at that age. But anyway. Um, but in essence, there's there's no there, there's no capacity for that person to make that claim. But if you're talking about like a 14 year old, you know, it comes back in, into this gray area again. And uh, I mean, that's a, that's a very tough question. And here's the thing, you know, it's already all over the place right now. Like, if you want to go torrent this stuff, you can torrent it. You can get right. Well, oh no, no, and I understand. We we covered pornography. This is about uh, actual prostitution. Like no, sir, I, I can't. I, no, under libertarian law, because they do not have capacity, uh, you know. Although there's a huge silver lining there, uh, gray area as far as what age of capacity is. No, if they don't, have, if if, if if it's like that, a six-year-old, no, that that is definitely against libertarian. Uh, that's an infringement of an individual. So seven-year-old, eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah, that was, this question that was, doesn't really get any easier to answer. I think would be right. one of the reasons why I asked you. Nine-year-old, ten-year-old, <laughs> gets harder. Twelve-year-old, you know, like when when is it okay? At what point will it be okay? That's, and um, then like then like who's the other? How how old's the other person that's having sex? Like if a, if if two ten-year-olds have sex, and they did it willingly, that's not a crime. I mean, you know, I mean. To my opinion, it might be horrible judgment, and the parents obviously weren't paying attention to their kids, or you know, there's other things we could attack. But it's not like I'd throw the kids in a cage over that, right? Right. No, no, and I, uh, I understand where you're coming from, um, and I, it comes back to being a very, uh, once again, I think Mary's wording was something along the lines of, uh, you know, we may not agree with decisions that children make, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I don't. I don't personally think that's the way to go about it, obviously, but, um, you know, I don't believe by any means, for example, that Mary Roar is a bad person or that she, you know, in, encourages those things. And I think that Wayne Allen went out of his way to, you know, to demonize her with that. And it was very... Um, well, you know, te- technically, so I, I, don't, I don't endorse somebody giving you a middle finger from across the street, right? I mean, I think that's rude and horrific. I think it's just, uh, it's a tremendous uh, detriment to society as a whole. There's no marginal utility. It's negative marginal utility, right? So, uh, but, I, you know, at the same time, I can't, you know, I, I can't stop him from doing it per se. If he follows you around and starts stalking you, then that becomes a case of stalking, you know, and that's different. Well, then, a question from the audience, then, is how does one acquire capacity, and how do we determine that capacity has been acquired since there's no state to make a rule like uh, age of consent? You know, how would you enforce such a thing? You know, if... Uh, for example, a 10-year-old is determined that they, you know, would like to engage in prostitution consensually, uh, you know, who has a right to intervene at that point? Right. No, that's a good question. And, you know, once again, this is the problem with, uh, with well, it's not really a problem in essence, it's actually a beautiful thing on some side of it, but anarcho-capitalists, we don't, we don't have every single answer for every single scenario. We, we're openly admitting about that, right? We know that we don't know uh, the perfect way to do things. We've been stopped from allowing people to tr- test out and try new ways, and so we want, what we want to do is allow free people to test out and try new ways and see what the best way is. So we don't always have, it's not like my one answer is always going to be the answer that the market's going to come with down the road. I can make guesses, hypotheses, uh, but in essence, I do think 
that some some you know, DRA, DRO agencies that are probably going to be around, and, and once again, they don't they don't have to be based around profit. I, I, I think I think that they will have. Uh, some money coming through somewhere, some medium of exchange happening uh, with customers, right? I, 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 do, I do see something like that happening. Um, that's just my guess. But they, I, I don't know. Maybe the future has them voluntarily without profit, right? But I think that they're going to set some standards. And they'll probably say something like, our, our DRO, if you want to subscribe with us, uh, you're, you, we'll, we'll view your kit at 16 as, as capacity. Um, and so if, uh, if, if you know the parents like that DRO and say 16 is good, then they can go with that. Un- unfortunately, this is one of the, the, this is why I usually try to side with the child in most of these cases is because I would rather, I would rather, it's a very, it's a very hard thing. I want to break down what this, this, this happens here, the two sides, right? On one side, we're allowing somebody who might not really be a full adult yet or have capacity to go out into the world and possibly do really bad for themselves, right, and not be prepared. And on the other side, we have the possible infringement of actually infringing on an adult that we think is still a child. So, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think is going to happen is just like society does today, there's going to be some norm. It's going to get passed down, even to a free society. And I think the number, like I said earlier, will just drop, and that most of the agencies around us will say, hey. Uh, you know, 15 and up, you're, you're viewed as an adult. They even do this for murder cases right now inside of the state, right? So if you murder somebody and you're 16 years old, they'll, they'll charge you as an adult. Well, I think something similar would happen in, inside of a DRO, and so they would say, well, we'll start accepting contracts with you at this age. You still have the right not to be infringed upon, right? Uh, but we can't give you that capacity. Like, maybe the DRO will even have the insurance already built in, so if the parents can't feed their child, for a month or something like that, or for a week, uh, you know, they, they can get some. Maybe that company can shoot out a charity network thing for them, or even pay for the insurance themselves. Uh, you know, who knows exactly the best way to, to do all this? But I do think that we do have society itself. This is what everybody's urging towards: is some standard, objective rules to go off of. All I'm saying is that you don't have to violently monopolize them. And what's going to happen when you do centralize these rules and laws to a system that can infringe on other people, like the state? is it is biased in one direction. You don't have open ideals, and only in a free society can you, can you do that. And I think that, uh, you know, the age of capacity itself, although it's very difficult, I don't think it would be that big of a problem inside of a free society. I think most people would just be adapted like they are today to the age of 18. Now, the state has set this arbitrary number, which I think, once again, the, the DROs would, would lower just from societal pressures, I think, naturally, because I think most adults, most parents realize that their children at 17 and a half it's no big difference six months down the road from today. They realize they're pretty much almost at the adult age. You know, it's like 95% there, if not more, right? So in essence, uh, DROs are going to say, listen, we have no incentive to go running around and catching 16, 17-year-olds for, for the parents. That's a waste of money. You should be taking right. your own kids. You, you know what I'm getting at here. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, um, I, I guess, I, okay, yeah, so uh, now I, I can see you're, you're definitely itching to get into the DRO thing. Um, uh, permit, permit me for a moment to to read some criticisms of anarcho-capitalism, um, and obviously you'll get an opportunity to respond. <laughs> no, sounds good. Um, anarchy is a political concept, is a naive floating abstraction. A society without an organized government would be at the mercy of the first criminal who came along and who would precipitate it into uh, the chaos of gang warfare. But the possibility of human immorality is not the only objection to anarchy. 
Even society, whose every member were fully rational and faultlessly moral, could not function in a state of anarchy. It is the need of objective laws and an arbiter uh, for honest disagreements among men that necessitates the establishment of government. The nature of government, the virtue of selfishness, page 112, Ayn Rand. Um, if the society provided no organized protection against force, it would compel every citizen to go about armed to turn his home into a fortress, to shoot any strangers approaching his door, or to join a protective gang of citizens who fight other gangs formed for the same purpose, and thus bring about the degeneration of the society into a chaos of gang rule, i.e. rule by brute force into perpetual tribal warfare of prehistorical savages. The use of physical force, even its retaliatory use, cannot be left to the discretion of individual citizens. Peaceful coexistence is impossible if a man has to live under the constant threat of force to be unleashed against him by any of his neighbors at any moment. Whether his neighbors' intentions are good or bad, whether their judgment is rational or irrational, whether they are motivated by a sense of justice or by ignorance or by prejudice or by malice, the use of force against one man cannot be left to the arbitrary decision of another. The nature of government, the virtue of selfishness, page 108. We'll pause there. All right, at the end, I think the first time she says, you know, government, and then she starts to go on about tribalism. If I was to just block out everything except for that part after the word government, I could use that argument against the state. That is, when I look around at the world, I see a bunch of people brainwashed into tribalism, and they use political people to go use arms on others in other countries, and this is called warfare. That is what is happening right now. It's like saying, uh, we can't have freedom because we might, it might bring tyranny about. It's like, well, no, I mean, you're not, it's like saying, well, maybe if I don't want to, to have my hand cut off, I should just cut my hand off. That's what it sounds like to somebody like me. It's, it all, that's all I hear out of it. It's just like, well, if you don't have this, then you're going to have people using force on you. Your neighbor can unwield uh, decisions on your life. And then they, they're going to have tribalism and, and fighting in between areas. That is statism. Just I mean, open your eyes, Ayn Rand. Look around you, Ayn Rand. She's clueless on this. She's clueless. She, she's a detriment to freedom, in my opinion, on many levels. Some people love her to death. I, you know, I'm one of those guys who really is not... I, I never post anything from Ayn Rand unless it's something like derogatory. I don't hate her. I think she meant well. I really do think she meant well. I don't think she was paid off by some secret corporatists to pull down the left or anything like that. I, I just think, uh, you know, the, the way that she goes about her arguments with anarchy are obviously... You could tell she didn't spend much time on the topic. Well, I think that um, her point uh, that would come into this that tends to be the point of other people as well, and then I probably... I'm just going to come out and say I, I hate her. Hate, hate. Uh, the woman justified the slaughter of Native Americans under the concept. Oh, and of, she and she was very racist against Muslims too. Yeah, she was not a good person, but she basically. She was a neocon, dude. She was a neocon through and through on most of her level. Right, and that's. But the point, I guess, is that you know, yeah, there are anarcho-capitalists that really worship this lady, including um, Stefan Malinu quotes her constantly. And I think that, you know, her attitude about things is like, well, look, you know, through my philosophy, I'm encouraging a society of profit-driven selfishness. Of course, we're going to need to have a a minarchist state to keep everybody in line because you can't trust people to, you know, to not be savages in a situation like I'm suggesting. Um, So, I mean, uh, okay, let me me move on unless there's something else really pressing you want to say. Just that conflict is costly in a free society. 
right? I, I think people don't like just to make more work on themselves. This is why the state's so nice is because they can just spend everybody else's money, right? So in a free society, cost uh, or, or conflict is very costly. You're going to want to avoid just naturally a natural human instinct to want to, because you want to save your money. You're not going to want to get in conflicts. They are costly. Uh, nobody said DRO services were going to be free. Uh, they might be for some people who can't afford them and stuff, but the people who are going to be doing the arbitration have to eat too. I mean, someday we might get to the point where there's replicators and, and we can move past all this and stuff, you know. But until that point, uh, you, you probably have uh, this thing. But what we have to really remember is that, that without the monopolization of the state, most of the people in cages right now wouldn't be there. Uh, most of the economic... We'd have a lot more economic stimulation. Uh, it, it just goes back to allowing individuals to live their own lives, you know? And so I, that's, that's where I think it really stems from. Okay. Um, let me move on to another critic, um, somebody else who's also held in extremely high regard um, for his opinions, um, at least particularly in regards to economics, uh, Ludwig von Mises. Uh, in an anarchist society, is the possibility entirely to be excluded that someone may negligently throw away a lighted match and start a fire or in a fit of anger, jealousy, or revenge inflict injury on his fellow man? Anarchism misunderstands the real nature of man. It would be practicable only in a world of angels and saints. Liberalism, meaning this is BC's talking, so he means classic liberalism, is not anarchism nor has it anything whatsoever to do with anarchism. The liberal understands quite, liter quite clearly that without resort to compulsion, um, the existence of society would be endangered and that behind the rules of conduct whose observance is necessary to assure peaceful human cooperation must stand the threat of force if the whole edifice of society is not to be continually at the mercy of any one of its members. One must be in a position to compel the person who will not respect the lives held, personal freedom, or pri private property of others to acquiesce and the rules of the life of society. This is the function that the liberal doctrine assigns to the state, the protection of property, liberty, and peace. Ludwig von Mises, Liberalism, pages three, uh, 36 and 37. Reading further, the anarchists overlook the undeniable fact that some people are either too narrow-minded or too weak to adjust themselves spontaneously to the conditions of social life. Even if we admit that every sane adult is endowed with the faculty of realizing the good of social cooperation and of acting, acting accordingly, there still remains the problem of the infants, the aged, and the insane. We may agree that he who acts antisocially uh, should be considered mentally sick and in need of care, but as long as not all are cured and as long as there are infants and the senile, some provision must be taken lest they jeopardize society. In our anarchistic society would be exposed to the mercy of every individual. Society cannot exist if the majority is not ready to, behave, to hinder by the application or threat of violent action minorities from destroying the social order. The power is vested in the state or government. Ludwig von Mises, Human Action, page 149. I only have one more, I promise. Um, a shallow-minded school of social philosophers, the anarchists, choose to ignore the matter by suggesting a stateless organization of mankind. They simply passed over the fact that men are not angels. They were too dull to realize that in the short run, an individual or a group of individuals can certainly further their own interests at the expense of their own and all other people's long-run interests. A society that is not prepared to thwart the attacks of such asocial and short-sighted aggressors is helpless. And, the, at the, um, and at the mercy of its least intelligent and most brutal members. 
While Plato founded his utopia on the hope that a small group of perfectly wise and morally impeccable philosophers will be available for the supreme conduct of affairs, anarchists implied an old man without any exception will be endowed with perfect wisdom and moral impeccability. They failed to conceive that no system of social cooperation can remove the dilemma between a man's or a group's interests in the short run and the, the long run. Government, as such, is not only an evil, but the most necessary and beneficial institution, as without it no lasting social cooperation and no civilization could be developed and preserved. It is a means to cope with an inherent imperfection of many, perhaps of the majority, of all people. If all men were able to realize that the alternative to peaceful social cooperation is the renunciation of all that distinguishes Homo sapiens from the beasts of prey, and if all had the moral strength always to act accordingly, there would not be any need for the establishment of a social apparatus of coercion and oppression. Not the state not the state is an evil, but the shortcomings of the human mind and the character that imperatively require the operation of a police power. Government and state can never be perfect because they owe their reason diatre to the imperfection of man and can attain their end to the elimination of man's innate impulse to violence only by recourse to violence, the very thing they are called upon to prevent. Ludwig von Mises, The Ultimate Foundation of Economics and Science, pages 98 and 99. All right. All right. So here, first off, I want, uh, this is what I think of when I hear Mises talking about how anarchy is all bad. He's basically saying uh, throughout his life, government can't do health care, government can't do, do roads efficiently. I guess I'm saying this. Look at L.A., two-hour waits to drive, you know, 20 minutes. Uh, the, the government can't even balance a budget. But somehow it'll protect property rights. <laughs> Sure, Mises, sure it will, right? And let's say people are perfect. Then I agree that you don't need a government. I think everybody always says that, right? Well, you think people are angels. In that case, you wouldn't need a government, right? I think we can all agree. But, as Robert LaFerre says, let's say people are horrendous, ambivalent, evil, outright to get you, then you don't dare give a small niche of them a violent monopoly to rule over others, or a government. That's how I just summarize it. <laughs> so anyway, government is not reason. It is, it's not even a structure. It's not even the real law. Government must break the rules that, that individual autonomy is supposed to be based around to survive. So, and, and these rules are supposed to be universal, right? So that whatever is supposed to apply to me is supposed to apply to you, to the guy who's left-handed, the guy who's black, white, red, doesn't matter. It's supposed to, so rules are supposed to be, if you're going to be a rule, like don't murder, don't steal, don't fraud, then they're supposed to be universal and apply, applicable to everyone equally. Well, this is impossible inside of a state that you are just giving this violent rulership to, which is a form of, of tribal warfare, that, that's all it is, right? It's, it's, like, it's like a violent monopoly where rules cannot be applied universally because the state has to break the rules in it. So it's, it's, to me, it's, it's hypocrisy on Mises' part for him to act like government can't do all these other things, but somehow it's going to uh, protect the individual. It's, it's nonsense. Okay, well, um, I guess that one of the reasons why I was compelled to bring this up, because I know that you know you disagree with Mises about this, um, was that another um, major thing that I've noticed frequently when I debate with anarcho-capitalists, and once again, I'm not calling you out specifically here, you're being honest about how you feel about it, um, yes, is that sometimes it reminds me of arguing with like creationists or, or people of certain religions where they will pick and choose and cherry-pick the beliefs of people and hold extremely strong to one thing they say and then say, oh, but we're going to ignore this other thing. Like, it's really important that we get all Old Testament and beat gay people to death because it says so <laughs> here. But on the other hand, you know, I'm going to eat all the shellfish I want. 
Um, yeah, and yeah, right. The reason why that, you know, and the analogy that I'm making is that, you know, it's like there are people out there that they will take Mises' words and his books and they will hit you over the head with them. Like, listen to this guy. He knows what he's talking about. You know, he is infallible. His, his opinions are absolutely infallible. And he's Economics 101. And you better listen to him about the economic calculation problem. He knows his stuff. You know, even if it was just his opinion, that's fine because he's just that smart. But on the same token, can just turn their backs on other things that Mises said. And that's where I think I, I, I run into a problem. I, I see a bit of a contradiction is that, you know, either Mises was smart enough to understand how people behaved and therefore, you know, his views on how people would behave in an economic situation were relevant or he didn't know. And I think that, um, honestly, I think that he does know. I mean, I think he does understand what would happen in a free market um, capitalist society. And I think that he basically feels that um, the nature of people in such a situation would cause, you know, violence and, and destruction. That's essentially, you know, where he gets his viewpoint on it. That's where Rand gets her viewpoint on it. And it's not an uncommon criticism of anarcho-capitalism or of any anarchist system. It's been around 6,000 years, man. <laughs> right. Well, it, and I think that, um, you know, it, it's... it's that I, but I think, I hope anyway that you see my point is that, you know, in one hand, people really want you to take Mises absolutely seriously. Like when I debated Stefan Molyneux, he repeated it like 300 times. Yet I'm sure that he's got some kind of apologist excuse for why Mises would have thought Stefan Molyneux was a, what was the wording, short-sighted, um, dull philosophy. You know, it's like this. Basically, he didn't like anarchists just to put it bluntly. Um, you know, and I, I think I, I find that, you know, it, it's difficult for me really. And that's one of the reasons why I said you have a difficult task ahead of you, Mike, because, you know, um, there are so many different flavors of these people, you know, and that there's so many different arguments. Like, I know. Um, I hear yeah. uh, intellectual property. Um, yes, absolutely intellectual property. And then I hear, no, no, no anarcho-capitalist <laughs> believes in intellectual property. That's insane. Well, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, and I believe in intellectual property. Well, then you're not a real anarcho-capitalist. Um, and I, I guess uh, so that would actually kind of well, bring me to, what do you think yeah. about intellectual property? Yeah, good, that's a great question, right? We have to, and I think this kind of intertwines, and someone is, I guess, I know we're not really talking about that too much tonight, but when we, when we look at the world and resources as a whole, we don't have... We have, unfortunately, unlimited wants and, and needs. Well, maybe not needs, but unlimited wants, for especially, and, and, and in case, a crap load of needs. And then, at least right now, uh, but we don't have all the resources. I mean, if, obviously, if, if there's a person starving, we have scarcity somewhere, right? I mean, that's uh, – maybe it's not even scarcity, per se. It's um, – some people could call it a misallocation of resources, which we could argue the root of that, too. Uh, but in essence, because we have scarcity – uh, this is where even the idea of property comes about in the first place. If if we could just have like if we lived in some heaven world or something like that, I don't know. The, you you would have you could just wish up what you wanted and have whatever you want. Here's an apple that's shiny and crisp and ready to eat right now. Well, I guess we, that would be great, right? Um, but since we don't have that world, uh, wh what we do have 
is people are going to decide, you know, I, I want, I think this resource would be used good with this and that, and other people disagree. Well, they're going to put their money where their mouth is and invest in what they think is best and do what they think is best to, you know, improve themselves in the world. Hopefully that's what they try to do. If not, it's a, it's a crime if they infringe on somebody else. You know where I'm going towards here. But because of that, that's why we have property. Now, in essence, when we think of intellectual property, it's, to me it's kind of like a misnomer. It's an oxymoron in essence because uh, it, 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 the ideal of intellectual des- uh, properties that you can just make a thought or a design, uh, uh, just like the, the actual design, not the, the ink or the paper the design's on, but actually the, like, the, the, the intangible thought of the design itself to make that property. Well, there is no scarcity. Like if, if, if I show somebody a picture of something, it's, 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 it's in their head, right? I mean, it's theirs. It's, they can replicate it, and they didn't deprive me of that paper and ink. You see what I'm saying? They have the design in their head, but they didn't really deprive me of the property. I still have the property here. I still have the design. I still have everything. So uh, what I have seen for the intellectual property is it's really a big state mechanism that came about to squash real property rights and to enforce a corporatist-type system of special advantages for companies who can lobby to get these patents, who have connections and can pay for all the lawyers to buy the patents up, so that they can get the special advantages and to stop other people from using property, their property. Because at that point, what it says is, well, like I own my computer in, 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 under libertarian theory. Uh, you know, it's, even if you want to look at it from personal property, even anarcho-communists would say, well, that's your computer, right? So, because I'm using it, right? So this is, this is my computer. No matter which anarcho thing you're looking at, I'm using this computer right now. I'm looking at the computer. I'm typing on the computer. Nobody really has the right to just come and be an asshole and take this computer away from me. Every Even an anarcho-communist would be like, come on, man. That's kind of douches. You don't need – there's other computers. You, know, you don't need that computer. What are you doing? So anyway, uh, I haven't – if somebody has an intellectual property law – and they impose it so they have this design. I, like, I can't make this design on my own computer. They're controlling what I can do on my own property. They don't have a right to control my property, right? So the tangible property takes, is only the real property that uh, what I think is real, and I think most anarcho-capitalists are finally coming over to this perspective, and that, that really the, uh, the whole idea of copyright itself and, and patents and intellectual property itself wouldn't really be too enforceable in a free society, just like it should not be, in a, uh, a state society. So, in essence, uh, intellectual property is really a state paradigm. It's, a, it's, it's more of a mental construct that tries to go above and beyond real property rights so that it can infringe on other people's property. And that's all it's really been used for is by state mechanisms uh, to give special advantages to people, just like uh, the, the whole idea of state uh, corporate licensing, right? Like I've always said, no, no company should, should have to go file for incorporation and, and pay the government to, uh, politicians to do this and that and, and go through their regulations for this stuff. To me, it's just absolute nonsense. You know, like the lady down in, in, in uh, Brooklyn, when she wanted to start up that be- hair beating company and she had to pay like $300 for a license and she was like, are you kidding? This is ridiculous. I can beat hair without you guys giving me your little check off sheet, you know? So anyway, uh, the, the whole idea though that, the, that these companies that can and do have a, a lot of power inside of the state. That's why they lobbied to the state, uh, because they can't do it in, in the marketplace without the state. They have to go in the state to grab these advantages, and they'll try and use the gun of the state to stop other people from using their property. So that's the way I see intellectual property. Is it's, it's, it's an oxymoron. Okay, so then I guess one of the things that comes up for me is that one of the ways that capitalism was explained to me is that particularly, um, like, I remember when I was part of the whole Ron Paul movement, they kept playing that uh, capitalist propaganda cartoon, Make Mine Freedom. Have you ever seen that one? 
I have. I don't remember it. I Basically, it, it was like a Warner Brothers esque cartoon where you have one guy and he he comes up with an idea to build uh, a widget of some kind, and then you know he gets some money, and then he he essentially turns himself to an entrepreneur, and that's you know supposed to be the perfect personification because he had this great idea. You know, and what occurred to me was that you know um, what protected his widget so that. Um, other companies, like you know, say big mega corporations, couldn't just come along and replicate and then put him out of business. You know, was the intellectual property rights that he had that he could essentially say, "You got that idea from me. That's my idea. I should be the one who can capitalize on that." Um, and I guess what I would see is is that anybody who had a lot of money in a situation like that could just, you know, walk around reverse engineering everybody's stuff and then you know taking it for themselves. So you know. And that happens eventually anyway. I mean, we got Pepsi and Coke. The problem is is that um, it definitely kind of, at least to me, makes it more difficult for me to believe that in an anarcho-capitalist society we could just start our own businesses based around ideas. Um, because anybody who has the capital is going to be able to go and, you know, and, and capitalize on your idea. That's an argument I frequently get into with people because here in Michigan, uh, for example, I have four friends who have started their own business, um, only one of which is succeeding, uh, the other three are not, and I asked every one of them how much the state had to do directly with anything in regards to their business, and all of them answered me that the state had pretty much nothing to do with it, like they paid like 60 bucks to register their corporation or whatever, but um, the reason that the one friend I have who is doing well is doing well is because his mother provided him the capital to buy all the equipment he needed. Um, and the thing that's holding back all the rest of my friends generally is that they don't have the capital to buy the equipment that they need and they can't find a way uh, to get the money to get that equipment, which is what's keeping them out. Um, you know, and I think that uh, the idea behind the intellectual property was, especially as an inventor, I have the right now to say, well, I created this concept, I'm going to you know, capitalize on it, and I, worked, I did the work and the research to make this happen. And if you're going to come along essentially and take the fruits of my labor and then go turn it into a product for yourself, you know, I feel entitled to some of that. Um, I, mean, I mean, that's 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 the lie. But when we look at empirical evidence and this and the subjective facts about this, or the objective facts about this, I mean, we can look at how the patent system has oligopolized the marketplace uh, through government more than I can ever imagine through a free market system where people can't stop others from you know, like imagine. How many how many people that are poor right now could have a job building Samsung phones? <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, th that right now uh, they've been in this large lawsuit with Apple and and all this legal fees that have just drained uh, not only just those companies but the industry as a whole. It just it just seems to me you know I have no if somebody can can take apart rebuild the thing and do it better and faster. That's what we want. We want to make competition on others. And there's not always going to be a success story for every single person out there. But the nice thing is, uh, with a freer society, although some people might not be a winner in that one time, they might win in something else down the road, especially as they gain more experience. Uh, and, this, and usually the winner-loser scenario only comes up from like when like people who are really investing at the top or people who are actually running the business. Most of the people who work at a restaurant really have, I mean, sure they have an incentive to keep the business going just so you can keep going back there for the next day to have a job. But really, if the company goes out of business, they're not taking any risk. They just go next door and get a job at the restaurant next door or maybe go to a different industry or go back to school or something. Hopefully. So, hopefully, right, right. Well, you know, in my opinion, the state makes it much more difficult 
uh, I, I look at the economy today and how many people are getting these degrees that are uh, basically uh, overinflated degrees, especially by propped up by the federal education department. And so, and then they, they trap these people into these debt loans. It's it just, I, I see this money scam that's being brought out, and everybody's afraid that the free market's going to have a, like some worse money scam. Well, I'm not afraid of being trapped into a money scam I can voluntarily exit out of any second. I'm, I'm worried about the one that I can't exit out of. My grandma can't exit out of. My kid can't exit out of. My wife, my neighbors, my coworkers, my friends, my family. I want them to be able to opt out of anything that's dangerous. And all we're saying is, you know, if, if there's something dangerous, you can try to convince other people. If there's like some, uh, I don't know, Hail Bop Comet's going to come back around in, what, 20 to 18 or something like that? And so you're, you're afraid in 200 years all these people are going to die again in suicide? Well, uh, you, you can go out there and talk to them and try to convince them not to do it, but really, uh, you know, the, the lack of a violent monopoly is not something to fear, in my opinion. I think that's where a lot of this comes from. To me, it's just, without the state, we're going to have all these companies just like, like like every company just has all the capital in the world. Well, so hopefully we do have a lot of these things that are re reverse engineered, and we can have that technology today versus seven years down the road when that patent runs out. You see what I'm saying? Well, no, and I, I think that actually kind of segues into my next portion, and um, it's pretty clear to me uh, that before I go any further, uh, Michael, would you be willing to come on and, and do another one of these? You know it, Neil, man. I love you, man. You're a good guy. That's no problem, because I've only got like 36 minutes left and <laughs> material to cover. So um, I want to play a clip for you, um, and this will kind of segue into my position about how, um, you know, the different concerns that I have about an anarcho-capitalist society um, and wealth inequality issues and uh, the effects of autocracy and, um, and the power of money and how uh, individuals are supposed to be able to rise up out of that. So. Let me play this, and um, it's only a minute long, and we'll take it from there. This according to Oxfam, of the world's 85 richest people, is equal to the 3.5 billion poorest people. It's fantastic. And this is a great thing because it inspires everybody, gets the motivation to look up to the 1% and say, I want to become one of those people. I'm going to fight hard to get up to the top. This is fantastic news, and of course I applaud it. What can be wrong with this? Really? Yes, really. Because somebody living on I celebrate a capitalism. dollar a day in Africa is getting up in the morning and saying, I'm going to be Bill Gates. That's the motivation Only everybody thing between needs. Me and I'm that not guy against is charity. Motivation. I just need to pull up my socks. I am oh, not wait, a, don't, I don't have socks. Look, don't tell me that you want to redistribute wealth again. That's never going to happen. All, okay? You know what? You take a simple stat like this, which is neither good nor bad. It's just a fact. It's a celebratory stat. I'm very excited about it. I'm wonderful to see it happen. I tell kids you know what, every day, if you... A, I'm just gonna, if what's wrong with this? Up at a cocktail party. No, no, Amanda, one what's wrong with this statement? One possible response If you to it, work hard, you might be stinking rich We're talking about people in extreme abject poverty. That's how you get three and a half no, billion No, we're not. You were just talking about really category. rich people. No. So um, that clip was actually taken uh, from a recent newscast that somebody had linked to me, and I'll, I'll share it with you later. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, now, so I, I had heard that earlier, actually. This guy brings up the, the wealth inequality, and you know it, something is definitely lost in the translation because you don't <laughs> you don't get to see how how strong the girl was when she was doing this because there's that brief pause, you know, where she's looking at him yeah. like, <laughs> are you on drugs? What, you know, and then she's like, really, some guy um, you know living at a dollar a day is thinking someday I'm gonna be Bill Gates. You know, like it was. Um, it was a really powerful quote, um, and then, right, you know, he's right. like, let me just pull up my socks. Oh, wait, I don't have socks. Um, was that guy a Republican? He sounds just like one. He sounds, yeah, um, very oh, Republican. But, yeah. um, 
He doesn't sound that different, though, than most of the libertarians I hear, and that's actually one of the things that okay. um, is driving me nuts right now, is that um, I'm watching is the, the more crazy theories about um, wealth inequality and all that are finding their way into the mainstream on Fox News, which is definitely, I hope, not where you were hoping um, your theories about economics no, would show let, up. Let me, let me kind of hit on this topic. I think this is crucial. I, right off the bat, I can tell uh, he, he's, he really is just one of those brainwashed pro-America freedom. He believes like Africa has had capitalism. He, it's, it's, it's like people I talk to who can't admit that Somalia just went through 40 years of totalitarianism, whether you want to call it socialism, whatever. They went through totalitarianism, right? These, these regions are literally having, like, like this, is, this is my, what I see is, like, when governments devolve and have ruined civilizations, this is what I look at when I look at Africa. This is my perspective, you know what I'm saying? Hear me out for a second. So I don't look at, at Africa and say, wow, that's capitalism in effect. Uh, what I do is I look at the regime in, in, in Nigeria, and I say, man, those guys fucking had central power worse than any status regime I've even seen, even in America or some other places, right? They might not use their foreign. They don't have enough money for foreign policy because they've grown so inefficient from the, so much central power uh, to the state that they, they, can't, you know, they can't even afford to have a state anymore, in essence, right? The state's killed itself off. So this is what's – and people just don't want it. Many of them in that region would like, yes, I'd rather not even have you guys walking around me with these real warfares going on all the time fighting for which government's going to win out. I don't want this. You know, you guys have been fighting for decades. So when I look at, at Africa, I think it is deplorable, disgusting. It's some of the worst places uh, for humanity, that, and so, some parts of Southeast Asia uh, and some parts of, of South America too. But that's, that's getting better in a lot of cases. A lot of people compare Somalia to anarcho-capitalism. Yeah, I know. Well, let, let, me, let me finish up real quick. So I don't, I don't look at it and say, wow, that, this is good and capitalism and all this stuff. I look at it and say, I, I, just, I look at the history and I see which totalitarian regime has been in charge for what and what happened. I can look at the empirical evidence and be like, man, these people have been torn to shreds by statist corporatism. Uh, that's what it really comes down to is you know, these companies will make contracts from, from other nation states. So like Exxon or, or really, what was it, Shell? Oh, man, down in Nigeria, they had this big thing and actually had an oil spill. I did a whole uh, paper on this back in my master's classes when I got my third degree. I went into full detail about how the lack of property rights down there enabled the, 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 the people, the, the government, to just pollute all of these lands that were actually technically homesteaded. It's kind of like when uh, uh, pilgrims came here and then just stole some of the land from the homesteaded Indians, right? <laughs> same thing. That's what I see. But it's just the government in that scenario instead of pilgrims. So I see the same thing. They just infringe on the property rights. They create these big oil spills, they sell out to these companies so that the government, the people in the top of the political food chain can make a bunch of money through this political connection for this one corporation that's been licensed specially by this other corporation in another nation state. And so they work together, but not for the people's benefit. You know, this isn't going back to praxeology, right? They, they're going to just do it. They have a gun. They can just do whatever they want. So they make these contracts. It's kind of like the Brazilian rainforest and how it's being decimated by the Brazilian government. And what they do is they have these contracts with these, co with these uh, corporations that they favor. Of course, it's probably like somebody's brother inside the government. So they get this contract with them. And what they do is they don't go in there and, and cut down trees and then replant the trees, like uh, the, 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 some of the more freedom companies here in America where actually tree production has been increasing the last 50 years here in America. We've had more trees now than we did 50 years ago, believe it or not, because there's an incentive to rebuild. The government has no incentive for them to rebuild down in Brazil. So the rainforest gets decimated. The guy's contracts, the company's contracts up. They just walk out of the rainforest, decimating it. Government makes their money. Company makes their money. 
vine forest screwed, whereas uh, at least in some freedom areas, uh, we see trees are actually being replanted. There's an incentive because the market value of the land, if you cut down a tree, it reduces the value of the land, especially if it's a tree cutting farm, right? And you're going to try and sell this tree cutting farm to somebody else. They're going to want trees on it. This all comes back down to appreciation, uh, from a, even from a, an economic perspective. There's an incentive to replant trees from, from you trying to resell the land, but if you don't have any control of the land, and the state does, and some political king does, or some ruler, you know, whatever. It, it, this, this, that's really tragedy of the commons. Why couldn't a private company just buy up a bunch of rainforest land and then log it all and then sell it and then that, you know... Um, they, they could, but you know what? There's people right now who are offering the Brazilian government billions of dollars to buy the rainforest, but they won't let them. They don't want to do it so they can preserve it, just like the people did over in England, England off that one reserve that's off the, the coast. It's just this nice place, and government had control of it for a while, and then they stopped funding to it. These people immediately moved in, homesteaded it, and now they made it this beautiful place. It's kind of like those, uh, those, those forests that are not run by government out west, and they're just gorgeous, and they have less forest fires, too, because there's an incentive for them not to just go out and burn some, something from some department. There's no accountability. So in essence, they are, there are people right now, conservationists, good-hearted people who might even vote Democrat or huge environmentalists. They want to make that their private property and take care of it, but they're not allowed to. Okay. Well, where would, in, let's just take the state out of the scenario. I, I don't want to go too far because there was actually an original point I wanted to get at with the African thing. But um, it, what is the okay? Where are the people going to get the money, you know, to go buy up all this rainforest land? Um, I don't know about you, but most conservationists I know are not really making a lot of money um, they, unless they have some other private thing going on. Um, where are they going to get the money to buy all of this? You know, and if there's no state involved, you know, like just pull that off the table. You know, let's just say we're talking about a private owner who happens to own this land and decided he wants to log it and now doesn't care what happens to it because that's what all he bought it for in the first place. So, you know, let's say this, so we go to a free society, right? And now we've kind of gone through this thing where we've had government for thousands of years, so we never really knew what it would have been like to have a free society to have it. So now we have the free society. I can see some of the rainforest being chopped down, but here's the economic incentive behind this, too. Every time you chop down one acre of rainforest, it makes the rest of the rainforest, at least to the conservationists, environmentalists, even more worth, right? It's worth even more. So because there's less of it, right? So, so the scarcity actually increases the amount of, 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 of demand for that in that case. So in this, in this case, environmentalists might not be able to buy up all of it, right? But they can buy up some of it. And then they can even set it up to where they can have tours. So people can come look at it, especially if, if, if like half the rainforest is decimated within the next 30 years. Let's say we get a free society then, and then this all happens in 30 years, and the Brazilian government's already trounced half of the rainforest by then to all these uh, you know, corporatist companies they have connections with. Then in that case, uh, we can move to a free society. Sorry. These, people, these people could make uh, you know, like a park and say, hey, you can come here, and most of this is untouched. We had to put up a little office over here so you can come and check in with us and say hi or whatever. Here's our, our flyers and pay $5 here at the entry or whatever. And then they could even make money off of selling the rainforest to 7 billion people in the world, right? And so, and especially with a free society, more people would have money for travel. We'd be much more productive and resourceful and, and have much more, uh, uh, lo much less poverty so more people could go on, on trips and they'd be able to go and see these, uh, these rainforests and it would actually uh, increase. So really one of the things that harms uh, this the most, especially with the, like the rain, the, not only the rainforest, but also like Sequoia, National King, uh, Kings Parks and stuff like that, 
out in Colorado or California and and the mountains in uh, in Yosemite is because uh, of the the there's a less demand for travel right now in a in a less free society because we have less wealth being produced than we would in a free society. So uh, that incentive structure, which would actually help create almost a whole new industry of conservation uh, and creating these parks that could actually be sustainable, that's being suppressed right now in this, under a state. Well, I don't know. Um, I, I guess that does kind of segue back to where I was getting at. I've never really seen anything compelling to lead me to the conclusion that suddenly everybody's going to have more wealth in a, in a anarcho-capitalist vision of a free society. Well, but well, Okay, well, well, what happens once the government stops wasting like 80% of it, right? I mean, the, right now they get, they get over half of the money and I think we could do without the trillion dollars of war and uh, the victimless crimes, the trillions of dollars that's spent on that. Just imagine all that money going back into activities that actually build production, right? People trying to reverse engineer and make all this new technology quicker, sooner. Man, the economy, we're all going to be much better off. It's, it's going to boom 3D printers and all that. We're going to, we're going to, that's the answer right there is to ending scarcity. Well, guess, lot, well what price. exactly, let's just take it in the scenario of the person in Africa. What is suddenly getting rid of the government going to enable those people to do to become uh, independent entrepreneurs that will allow them to suddenly be wealthy? They, they live in the middle of the desert and they barely own property. Well, most most of them actually don't live in a desert area. Uh, most people in the lower the, the desert area is only near the, the equator, which is up north. Okay, most, right, but you, you get my point. Okay, okay, okay. So, uh, so, but here's the thing: Have you ever seen pictures? Have you ever like like seen videos and stuff over in? There are some really poor areas, but actually, there's actually not all. There's cities, and they already have. Uh, things going right. The, the, the problem is they don't have any property rights. So the the, the tyrant and the, that has the warlord of the time, uh, to me it's just another government because they infringe on property rights. So the tyrant at that time says, well, uh, you're, you can have the the post office. We'll give you a special connection, but you have to pay me thirty percent fees on the side of this, and you have to do our regulations and rules. So right now they're being hampered more than people. It's, it's like that's what's really doing it. It's not that people are just like. Us producing and trading freely over here makes them poor. No, their own their own policies in their own regions are making them poor, holding them down right now. And uh, these people, nobody, nobody says that a poor person is going to be able to. But maybe some of the other people around them will be better off, and then they can pull up the rest of them. And that's that's really how freedom works. It's it's more of a pull up movement where everybody works together peacefully. Whereas the, you know any any what I view is most collective action, not necessarily all collective action. Because once again, I think voluntarism is a form of voluntary collectivism. Right. But enforced collectivism, yeah, that's not working together it's the opposite of that so you know it goes back to the incentive structure of what's the best way to, to work with others and I think we've seen a lot less cost a lot uh, not just from economic but also from a humanity humane perspective when we treat people with respect and respect them as individuals so you know I, I think I think one of the things is that uh, it, it's, it's not like me uh, peacefully interacting with others and owning property is not what it is technically it doesn't hurt like I, I'm not hitting somebody else I, I sure you could say well there's only that one piece of property out there and there is scarcity and we even admit to that I even admit that there's scarcity in the world and I understand that that guy is technically a ruler over his own property right so technically you could say well he's a government over himself and I, I, you know they call that self-government but anyway my, my point is I, I would that 
is really there's no utopian ideal society out there that I can see. It's just like, are you going to have people living their own lives peacefully and interacting off of property, or are you just going to have this free for all inside of this collective where a certain number of people get into it, taint it towards one direction, prop up one human over another? And that's how I've always, every time I look back through thousands of years of history, that's how any type of collectivist system is gone. Even when the, the squatters in England happened, they finally had a few leaders that started to rise up and people just got pissed off and left. You know, it's just like, well, it's just kind of a natural thing inside of a collective to have like a tiebreaker person pop out or somebody take advantage of a system. And that's really, I think, the challenge with Zeitgeist is, is uh, you know, not only the economic calculation problem, but also that. So um, not, that I, I, not that I'm against Zeitgeist. You know me, man. I, I, don't, I don't hate Zeitgeisters or anything like that. I just don't see a computer system being able to uh, praxeologically okay, answer. I understand, but that's not what I asked you. Okay, go ahead. Repeat, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, um, we're talking about how people are supposed to be able to become independently wealthy if they okay. don't have capital in the first place. Yeah, th that's the thing. You can't... You can't the state can't pull up others. It's going to have to be other people in their society and community pulling them up through bettering themselves. So if some guy is bettering himself, then he'll, he'll be able to spend more money, right? So if one guy's getting more money, he, he can go off and buy more money or invest more money into a bank, which will turn around and loan it out to a company. Uh, in a free society, you won't have interest rates being held down to 0.8% nonsense like this, right? So there's going to be an incentive to, to loan out to businesses unlike today. And uh, to lend money to a bank to where they will loan. So the whole point of this is, um, you know, <laughs> the free society, you're going to have to have people pulling up those others. It's kind of like even in statism, well, if there's somebody who's down on their luck here, the rest of us have to kind of pick them up. But the, just because we don't have a state steal from others to do it doesn't mean that the opportunities won't become available. If anything, what we're saying and what we're, the, the reason anarcho caps even cry out against the state at all is because it hampers opportunity, and we know that opportunity is what people need to be pulled out of, op of poverty, uh, not false promises from some, you know, Okay, so basically the suggestion then would be altruism. No, no, it would be more of the market. As it's becoming more productive, it would open up more jobs, and more people would be able to get more jobs, and they could better themselves, new skills, et cetera, et cetera. So you're and, and altruism. I mean, but not just charity. But when you have a market that like in a very efficient economy, I don't have to go to my neighbor next door down here and be like, man, are you okay today? Are you, are you going to live through the night? Dude, I, I, I can go get a job around me. There's thousands of new jobs. Our economy's grown to that size where we're free enough to actually have this stuff and we can be pro productive enough and not be hampered and we have all these opportunities. That's, that's why I don't have to worry too much about the guy down the street as much as I do the starving kid in Africa who has no property rights. The central government controls everything and it's just decimated and just like the rainforest and all, so all the negative externalities that come off of that that most people just... They're unseen consequences. This goes back to the broken window fallacy. Most people just simply can't see this stuff because it's kind of like uh, behind the scenes. It's invisible. Nobody can see uh, that how taxes... It's funny because people will, will call for a attacks on cigarettes to deter cigarette smoking, right? Which in some cases on a very small, minute level does. Uh, but then they can't see how a tax would reduce the amount of capital and investment into whatever that research and development might be happening or into the, the workers or that industry as a whole. Like it, how it would even deter labor. It, it kind of just, it, it makes me wonder like how people cannot admit to that when they are going out and advocating something and even admitting empirically that a tax on cigarettes will slightly reduce the amount of taxes. Well, why would it not do the same with productivity? Why, why is it that, that like, that, it, there's so many regulatory costs 
on you and me, my grandma, my sister, my cousin right now. I can't just go inside of a mall and make a contract with a guy at the mall. We have to fill all this government paperwork so I can set up a kiosk in his mall. It's going to have to be approved. It actually have to doesn't that. really cost that much money. Well, if you have the city planners, well, if they already have the spot picked out right, if they already have the store made that way and I get the contract, but what if they don't? What if I want to go set up a kiosk uh, right in the middle of their mall? I'll have to get the fire code safety guy out there. There's a lot of things. I could go through this whole list. Right, and it still government doesn't cost that much that, money, that well, all that could be going to feeding starving children, but no, the government officials are so honorable and noble that they will regulate us for that. Oh, and of course, they're going to make a shitload of money off. I never hear of a government employee who's really hurting for money, you know, like like any board member who's just not making 50000 a year, right? Well, I'm, I'm making a, a half that, if that, right? So it's, it's just kind of like... And I feel like I'm actually doing something productive instead of just holding and hampering other people back. That's the thing. If, if you really think that people are bettered off uh, by this, you know, and I don't, I'm not saying you or that guy does, but say this in general, and we're looking, we're analyzing the NCAF thing here. If you actually believe that going around and using threats of violence to get your way is actually going to be somewhat sustainable, even in the long term, let alone short term, let alone ethical, that right there is, is the ultra concern, is that we are, we are saying that we have the right to control somebody else's lives, you know? I, I, I have, that's where my stomach twists. And it well, just right, and I think that um, one of the reasons why you guys run into so much trouble with the Somalia thing is that people basically kind of draw parallels to a situation where a large group of people are responsible entirely for their own security, um, and, you know, one person manages to get a larger security force, essentially, than the other one, and then ends up in charge. But that's the government. Well, I mean, well, yeah, but it's, it's not because it's, it's private property. Well, you, but it becomes a state at that point. What you're suggesting is, is once a warlord has taken enough power, it becomes a state, right? Technically, they've always been the the warlords that are over there have always been politically connected. They were the people who were at the top of the food chain. They they used to have people voting for them. They were the Democrats and the Republicans of, of our regions. Okay, so those people over there that are warlords now, it's not like they just all of a sudden popped up and was like, hey, I'm going to be a warlord. I'm going to just pay all these guys secret money. They already had these people brainwashed into a statist mentality where they buy into the anthems and the flags and all the brainwashing. So they have those people in their in their palms, and that's why they can get these guys. And 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 not only just because you can pay. It's kind of like today. Police officers, 80% of what they do is not uh, to protect people and, and their lives and property. It's to infringe on them, throw peaceful people in cages. I mean, almost half of the people in cages right now shouldn't even be there, and I have to pay for it right on top of this. Well, yeah, well, we definitely don't have an argument about that. I guess uh, my, my point would be that I don't understand what's going to prevent people from let me talk uh, seizing power. Well, uh, no, people can people can seek power all they want, but if the people around them are not brainwashed into the power structure, they're not going to. It's kind of like a person can be as greedy as they want, but if they don't if they don't have a good product to sell or they don't have a gun to point at somebody else to force them to do something, they're not going to. That greed's like pointless. Well, it's the same thing with this, right? You can want to be a Hitler. There's Pinky in, is in his basement right now uh, with with uh, Doctor Evil, and they're wanting to take over the world, but they can't, right? Well, they're, they're stupid. Doctor Evil should have just gone and run for office. He could have already had the whole world, right? But my my point is, the, the state is tribalism. The state is warfare. The state is all the things everybody's always afraid of. That the anarchy, which is the private private property society, it, it's like we're so afraid of these warlords taking over. We're going to go make our own warlords uh, that are just going to be in nicer suits or something. It's like, uh, guys, it's the same thing, you know. Call them private security. 
Well, no, 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 not to, no. The question is, what what is private and public? And this this is why I wanted to finish that last statement because when I was talking about like like Coney and, and and all these other warlords from back in the day that were over there that are kind of falling apart now as more and more people don't buy into this bullshit of uh, you know like bow down to the, to the politicians and stuff like that. They used to have those people so sucked into state communism. It, it's it's scary. Like it kind of reminds me of North Korea and in the people over there. They can't even imagine anything I'm talking about, and if they did, they'd be thrown in, like, libertarians like me are just shot on site or thrown into a concentration camp over there, right? They can't even imagine, they can't even imagine having a non-aggression-based society. They are so brainwashed into it. That is why Africa is still, it's the lingering effects of an old forced collectivist system that forced them and brainwashed them into believing and aggressing on other people's private property, and you still have a lot of people from the, that have those, those nasty side effects left over, and that's what empowers the old political left and right to turn into these warlords, still have these supporters that they wouldn't have had uh, in, a, in a free society. Like no, nobody, nobody in a free society. If, if you, if you and I have a free, once we get to, to even get to a free society, it's going to take a lot of people understanding the non-aggression principle, which have never heard of it whatsoever before. Right? I mean, a lot of people. So once we get to that point, it's not, it's, it's kind of like today. People are going to say, "Man, you know those kings and queens back in the day in the 1400s? I want to go back to serfdom. Man, that was the." Best. You know, I, I can't wait to get rid of this democracy and go back to these kings and queens. Nobody's really doing that, right? It's going to be the same thing down the road. Nobody's going to be like, oh, I can't wait to go join this criminal syndicate called a government or a warlord and want to go infringe on other people's private property, especially when it's going to be all over the Internet nowadays. As technology spreads over in Africa and we have more video cameras, that's the only thing protecting us, really. We've, we, America would have been ten times more totalitarian if it wasn't for technology over the last 40 years. I can't even imagine. I mean, you think it's bad now? It would have even been worse. And that's only a tenth of what the people have been left over from forced statism over in, in uh, those African regions, which have had some of the highest amounts of statism and the least amounts of respect for individual and property. That those regions always score the lowest on the index of economic freedom. They have highest trade tar tariffs, even though the government is almost non-existent. If you want to trade something in there and you're from another region, you're another company, you can still have to go talk to that guy and pay him 4%, right? It's kind of like the old saying that uh, welfare or foreign aid is taking uh, money money from the poor in rich countries and giving it to rich people in poor countries, that, that's all the state, the, the state really has done. And that's what's trapped Africa all these years. And what they do is they try to make it, they try to distract people away from the fact that it's the lack of respecting other people's in, in individual freedoms. And they'll try and distract people away from that and make it sound like, oh, uh, this, this one clan did one thing. So they keep these people brainwashed into clans and tribes and statism over there. And that's how they can get so many people to go into it. So wh anytime I see like a private security agency out of Africa, Africa, uh, I'm pretty sure about 95% of those people used to be on some old political statist roster inside in some government. Those people, uh, just like Al Qaeda, they didn't just they didn't. Oh, just, oh nope. okay. What's the solution, though? How do you stop that in a in a free society? Is it that essentially we're going to have to brainwash everybody to follow the NAP instead? Well, I guess it's not brainwashing. It's clarifying. It's just. It's kind of like saying, hey, some guy believes in God, right? Well, actually, there's, there's no real God, so can you just put down the, gun, the, the crusades and stop the crusades? You know what? We get enough people to actually understand there's no God, and the crusades just basically stop, dude. Well, that's what we need to do, because government is nothing but one huge big crusade, and it usually couples religion with it. So it's like, it's like the worst of both worlds if you're a pragmatic atheist uh, 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 or even an agnostic. The last thing you want to do is believe how people just blindly believe in a forced hierarchy system. So what we have to do is unbrainwash forced hierarchy out of people. 
So, well, that definitely sounds like an arduous task to undertake. Um, no way, I, I've seen a huge explosion on my Facebook page. I see people, like, it's blowing up more than I've ever seen it before in my life. These ideals just came about in the last 50 years, and there used to be some guy, two guys, who didn't even really have the full picture, <clears throat> Mises and Ayn Rand and some of these others. They didn't even have the full picture, and they somewhat got some glimpse of it somehow, even though today we look back on their work and are, like, laughing at it, most of it. Not all of it, really. They did, they did some good work. They did some, you know, there's some good things that they did uh, that I really still like, but... Um, but now I look back, I'm like, man, they, they, you know, like, look at him talk about anarchy. Like, this guy, you, you know, he was, man, look how brainwashed he was into the status, you know, environment that he was raised into, this forced hierarchy system. But today, the, these young generations, almost all of my fan base are people who are my age or younger, and some are older, obviously, but it's like this youth of people who finally we have the internet. We can connect with each other. We can call out the crimes of policemen and, and the military interventions. We can show how taxation is the of all this and how if we can stop that then maybe we could go and try and solve some of the problems inside of a free society that we know will still exist but for right now can we, can we, can we put the guns down and reason for a freaking second no that's what most people are still brainwashed into no no I will not stop think outside of my little preconditioned box that I was raised into went to 12 years of public education I have been addicted and, and indoctrinated into this forced hierarchy system um, I'm not saying you can't have your collective I'm not saying you can't I'm just saying can we just put down the guns and respect other people and their individual property and go from there and see what, and, and maybe, maybe we could do a thousand year experiment on that. I still think it would be better than uh, most of the other experiments we've seen throughout history because really, as I said before, we've never seen a truly free society. Sure, I just had Daniel Hawkins on my show earlier at 3 p.m. today. He was talking about uh, Celts, uh, Ireland. He was talking about uh, the Roman Empire and the barbarians. We talked about uh, a, a variety of different regions who might have broken away from other states regions and might have been freer had some kind of a polycentric law and they did really really well and, and, and in some cases unfortunately some of them were taken over by other states but the times that they had it they were doing wonderful no victimless crimes you know unfortunately Ireland still had slavery which was a leftover effect once again of, of government people somehow think that like government stopped slavery if anything they encouraged it for 4,000 years and now all of a sudden a bunch of people in the grassroots get into the government and force them to, to, to change uh, you know, the way they view slavery. And, and, and now, government's viewed as this thing that stops slavery, but really it was the grassroots effort and a bunch of good people who said, well, we can't let you do this forever. You know? And so that's all we have to do is now we ended uh, chain slavery. We just have to take off the shackles the next way and allow these individuals, it might be scary sounding, it might be horrific sounding, to let people peacefully interact as they wish, but that, that really is the only sensible and plausible answer I have at this point. I, I don't... I think most of the stuff that, that uh, people have against it is really a fear, uh, it's a, a form of fear-mongering, just like, um, the, you know, if we don't attack them, the terrorists are going to kill us. It's the same thing. Well, if we don't have a government, we're not going to have freedom. It, 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 I, I just don't believe it, you know. That's just okay, well, no, and it's, I think that um, in retrospect, looking back on this conversation that we've had tonight, is that it's uh, a frequent problem that I have is that it's not enough to simply belabor the point that the state is not great. Um, you have to provide alternatives to people. And I think that um, it is frequently an issue that I find, and it's not just with you guys, obviously, with anybody who wants to redesign society. They have to be able to give, you know, uh, conscious, tangible, understandable alternatives. And that's why I hit you with the really hard questions. Um, and I think that you know, we definitely spent more energy than I would have hoped um, in the last <laughs> two hours on belaboring the issue of the state. 
Um, I've often made the joke that if I were to make an anarcho-capitalist pull-string doll, um, you know, that you would pull the string and it would say three different phrases randomly, one of them would most certainly be, it's the state's fault. Um, <laughs> and I get that. Um, there, there's no question that the state is bad. I think that, and what I want to concentrate more is we kind of segue more into the, the economic side of things, which is what I was hoping to do. Um, but it definitely didn't happen, and we've only got like six minutes left, is that um, it, it's not just about explaining to me how um, the state will go. Um, there's no question about that. But I think that one of the major problems that I have found um, in understanding anarchist theory about how people are supposed to become independently wealthy and such is that they lean very heavily on this argument that it's the state that's preventing people from just starting their own businesses or finding other jobs or whatever when um, and in many cases grossly over exaggerate the amount of money that it costs which isn't to say that I think that the state should be interfering I'm sure that it you know that it should it's just I've watched firsthand I mean you know this is the thing that you know when Stefan Molyneux tried to wave off Peter Joseph's argument with a with a magic wand by saying well I prefer to talk to people who've been involved in the markets and you know, they know what they're talking about. This this Peter Joseph guy doesn't. And I'm like, well, um, I have, and I have friends who have, and um, the state is not what's stopping them. It's the state of um, the fact that they don't have any money and therefore can't become independently wealthy because you have to spend money to make money. Um, you know, and that's why essentially when you, you look at the plight of the person in Africa, you tell them the guy that doesn't have any income, well, you won't have any income tax. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> he doesn't have any money in the first place, um, you know. And I, I see your point that maybe more jobs will open up in the area, but um, I, I think that it comes back to what I told Mary, you know, at the Libertarian Convention in 2008 when I was a delegate. Uh, you know, I think that if the whole world was made full of very sweet ladies named Mary Ruart, we'd be fine. But um, you know, I think that some of the, essentially, I think that you know, people like Macy's and Rand understood their economics very well, and I feel that their issues that have to do with anarcho-capitalism come directly from the fact that they understand, at least in their viewpoint, how people are going to behave in those economic conditions, and that's why they feel that there needs to be some, you know, other system. And um, when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about, uh, you know, obviously we'll talk about DROs and, and private courts and, and private security and all of that. I wanted to kind of instead touch on some stuff that you and I hadn't talked about first so that it wasn't just more of the same and, you know, turning off our listeners to listen to us both and <laughs> on about the things we've already discussed in the past. Right. Um, so I want to thank you again for coming on tonight, Michael. Um, uh, once again, please feel free to re-upload this to your own channel. Um, and, uh, you know, can you tell my listeners where they can find your stuff? Absolutely. My website is voluntaryvirtues.com. And my Facebook page, which as of last night, two nights ago, has 178,000 fans on it. So I'd highly recommend you guys go join the conversation over there and interject your two cents. We welcome everybody. I don't ban people. You can ask. There's a bunch of assholes. I probably should have banned already, but anyway. <laughs> uh, I, I welcome you guys over at Statism is Slavery on Facebook. And uh, you guys could just type in facebook.com slash statism makes you a slave. Uh, I, I do want to uh, thank you. Again, Neil, uh, I, I want to also inter in, in, interject this last comment. I, I, I personally don't believe that every problem comes from the state, although I understand why it would sound like that. So, <laughs> uh, anyway. No, I understand. Yeah. And I, and it, it, to me, it's a, it's, a two, it's a one step forward, two step backs with the state. That's how I look at it. So, and not every problem arises from the state, but a lot of the issues that we have are. Uh, that I just try and point out the unseen 
things that most people don't really recognize. So, but I do want to thank you. This, as I said at the beginning of the show, having this discussion right here is what will help people grow. It'll point them. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they'll point out where I'm wrong, and they can say, hey, you're an idiot here, you're an idiot here, or hopefully you say it in a nicer way than that, right? <laughs> but anyway, hey, I disagree with you here, uh, and then I can learn from them, and vice versa. We can all grow. So this is, I encourage everybody uh, to, to do stuff like this. Please get out there. Try to get your voice uh, you know, out there, but also take the other people's opinions and, and, and try and learn from them. I've, I've learned from having discussions with Neil, so I thank you, Neil, for having me, and I can't wait till we uh, do this again. Sure. Well, I'll talk to you off the air here, and we can look at what will be good for that. And um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. Um, if this is your first time checking out V Radio, please go to my website, v- or v-radio.org, where you can find more shows like this one, other conversations uh, with Michael, as well as um, you know other activists, people from different life, uh, you know, walks of life and perspectives on how we can achieve a society of uh, freedom and peace. Um, you know, and uh, if you liked uh, what you heard tonight in our two-hour marathon debate, uh, please consider a donation. Um, and if you like Michael's point of view, obviously, you know, don't hesitate to donate on his website as well. Uh, we are the alternative media, so unless you'd like to listen to, well, I, I don't want to make this comparison because honestly, I find listening to John Stewart versus Phil O'Reilly to be very entertaining. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too, me I guess too. we could say, you know, find some other liberal pundit to argue with Bill O'Reilly. You know, you could find, <laughs> you, know, an, you know, an opportunity uh, there. You know, you, you, regardless. Bill O'Reilly will start the argument. <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. He'll, he'll stick his finger in your face and tell you to shut up or have your mic cut because that guy comes off as a total status. Um, but anyway, um, you know, donate to alternative media, folks. If you know, if you want to be able to hear it out there, understand that people are taking time out of their lives, away from their families, to basically provide you with the service. And you know, that service, you know, uh, if you fund it, it will be there. <laughs> Take care, everybody.